This is Kate Beckinsale. You're listening to Beckinsale. Begin the week with a friendly voice, a companion non-obtrusive. Argues a bracket that's so inconclusive, and the goofy banter makes your morning mood. Up on your way, hit the open road. There is magic at your fingers. For the podcast ever lingers as miles pass by in your happy solitude. Whoa! One take, one take. One take. I'm going to go now. That was Joel. Whoa. I'm Kent. And I'm amazed. (laughs) And Zach. Good job. It was weird because I was going for uh, Getty Lee, but I think I ended up at Jack Black. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Still good. But But, everyone, welcome to Bacon Cell. Yes. Welcome to Bacon Cell. And thank you for listening to our last show, our finals of the Disney sidekick bracket. It was a bloody bracket. Everybody agreed. Agreed, and there were no problems, especially on Twitter. The logic was so sound, no one had any arguments. You see, listener, this is what happens when I agree with Joel. (laughs) Mm. Maybe we don't want me to do that, huh? But but, people agreed, right, Zach? Of course. Well, let's go to Facebook, where we have Nicole D. Hale saying, I'm so happy to see how far Helga got, because I'm the one person who loves Atlantis. It was my favorite Disney movie for the longest time, which... I didn't know anybody what upstage liked it. Atlantis at this point. What? Is that possible? Atlantis is a Disney movie? <laughs> <laughs> it's like Anastasia. It kind of counts, but not ah, really. Yeah. Wait, Anastasia from Cinderella or Anastasia from Anastasia? Anastasia from Anastasia. Oh, okay. Oh, sure. geez. Um, and then Valerie Loveless Ilguth said, this was so fun. My sisters came to visit with our children, so we had to, the older kids fill out the brackets. They were all very upset when you took out the genie in the first round <laughs> and have been discussing <laughs> the logistics the for ones. two days. Uh, they were very entertained by the imaginary battles, and they wished there was a movie version of the whole death match. Thanks oh. for helping keep a bunch of kids entertained for several hours. If wow. only we had an animator to do that. Can you and, imagine? Oh, and I love, I love they printed out the brackets though and used them. Yes, that's why. That's why we put them on BaconCell.com. Any of the tournaments we've done, you can go print out a bracket and hand it out with your families or at work or to your office mates in your home as you're working from home. Yeah. But uh, it's fun to play. And so that's why we put them out there for you. And yes, I will be drawing Flotsam and Jetsam as reverence. Thank you. <laughs> that's all I wanted. <laughs> That's a shirt right there. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and then we actually, there's a bunch of, I couldn't even go into it, but there was a ton of fun that we had on Twitter. So make sure you're following Bacon Sale on Twitter because there was a ton of fun that we were having back and forth with Drew Cutler and Ryan Farron on Twitter. Yeah. It's pretty fun. Ryan Farron, huh? Yeah, yeah, Ryan Farron. He's a patron. But before we talk about that patron, let's talk about a new patron that we got. Absolutely. What? We have a new patron. Bow, bow, bow. Hey, Natalie. Natalie Nuttall. Happy birthday. Oh, hey, Natalie. Happy Happy birthday. birthday. Your awesome sister, Kaylee, decided she was going to give you the gift of patronage. So you are now patron of Bacon Sale, and you get access to all our random bacon bits. Wow, this last one was probably not the best one to start with, because uh, it was all about uh, how much uh, Kent was willing to reveal in a movie um, and yeah. Star Wars. But uh, yeah. it's these extra little shows we do there. Uh, you can enjoy those at patreon.com slash bacon But Natalie, thank you for being a patron. And Kaylee, thank you for being an awesome sister. Yes, absolutely. Super cool. Super cool. Speaking of patrons, we have one here in the room. <gasps> Hello. Ryan! It's Ryan! Ryan, what was the last time you were here? The last time I was here, I upset you, Joel, with killing off the Iron Giant and a robot. I kid you not. (laughs) I kid you not. (laughs) When I was trapped up at our our family cabin, and we only had the movies that were there, one of them was Alita Battle Battle Angel, and I went, I'm never watching it. Watch it! And put it back on the shelf. It's good. You're never going to watch it. you got to watch it at least once. Protest. Was that last September? Last yes, August or last September? September, I yeah. believe. Yeah. So welcome back. So what? Which robot show are we doing today? Uh, well, today we're not really going to talk about robots because what? I, I kind of ran out of ideas for robots. <laughs> you can only do two <laughs> robot topics. That's and impossible. And as a member of Baking Council, you get to you get to kind of uh, pick a topic that we can talk about. 
and so suggested a topic. And today you have suggested one that we didn't want to want to hurry to, but we wanted to rush to. Oh, <laughs> wanted to get <laughs> at least one is. of those out. What are we talking about today, Zach? We're talking. Rush, the famous rock band Limbaugh. from well oh, no, a long what? time. Oh, no. Not yeah, Rush Limbaugh. Definitely. Yeah. When Ryan told me about this idea, I was a little leery. In fact, I told these guys, Ryan's got a couple ideas. I'm not super sure about him. <laughs> 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 He's pretty passionate about Rush, as we well know. You know, we all know who Rush is, well, even if we're not familiar with the music. That's just it, though. I think maybe people have heard the songs of Rush, but don't know it's Rush, per se. Yeah. Mm. Like, some of the songs are just kind of ubiquitous. They're everywhere, but you don't know who they're by. You've heard them in a soundtrack or on a road trip somewhere. But what, what episode was it? Like, where, like what, what made you decide to do a Rush show, I guess, is the question. Uh, well, a couple of things. One, uh, we'll probably get to this later, but Neil Peart, the uh, drummer tragically passed away beginning of this year 2020 mm-hmm. has been such a wonderful year that no. seriously yeah. that was right like, in january too, yeah wasn't yeah. It? yeah man it feels like 10 years ago yeah there was a conversation i had on twitter that after, right after he died that somebody wanted wanted you guys to do a show and i said well i'll do my patreon show for rush and then after you guys did your beach Boys show i was like that's the perfect format we should do a rush show kind of like your beach Boys show so. except for the fact that you are a big rush fan mm. zach is a big rush fan yes Kent and I have heard of the band. Yeah. So like we were like, well, we can't really do a top five, bottom five favorites with our with our novice level experience. So we decided to go with a kind of a fan, super fan, novice format. Here. Yes. That's what we're doing right now. Also, we'd like to apologize if they've even made it this far to the women who listen to Bacon Cell. Because, Ryan, I'm not sure if you know if women listen to Bacon Cell. Thankfully, they do. But not this episode because it's about Rush. <laughs> I'm making a, like Rush? a sweeping generalization here. Well, I think that most of my episodes that I'm on are probably some of your least uh, <laughs> robots and Rush. Who, who wants to listen Wait, to that? It's all our things. So, from, like, from what I've noticed, like Rush is the Carl's Jr. of rock bands. Like you'll never see a woman in Carl's Jr. What? And I think it's rare, having seen some documentaries and some concert footage, mm-hmm. seeing a woman in the audience in a Rush concert is incredibly rare. What? Well, Do you he, not think so? I, I didn't. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't well, get that vibe. A uh, member of the band, the guitar player Alex, he said uh, in an interview one time, "When we started out, our fan base was 100% male, and now our fan base is 100% male." <laughs> so, <laughs> really, yeah. I had no yeah. idea. This was yeah, like I mean, a there, there are the certainly some. Yeah, it is but, a big stereotype yeah. that everybody that goes this well, is a male. So. Let's bring it very, 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 very far back. Yes. Who is Rush? Like what? What is this band? So, do you want me to go? You want me to? Yeah, do yeah. It? You, so, you, you and Zach are the super fans, so you guys get to do a lot of the talking today. And Kent and I just gonna make snarky teach remarks. Teach us. We went on Wikipedia for a lot of our information. Yes, a source of yeah. all knowledge and truth. But it's not experience. You know, we're we're mm-hmm. we're book rush smart. We're yeah. not street rush smart. Right. Rush formed from the neighborhood of Willowdale in Toronto, Canada. So that's a wow. Way so back. The, wait, way Canadians? Back. Yeah. So we don't spot like Canadian bands on bacon <laughs> sale, but they're so nice. <laughs> they are they so are nice. Very nice. Yeah. All right, so Alex Lifeson meets Getty Lee in middle school, I believe, is when they first become friends. And Alex uh, forms a band with two other guys that aren't Getty Lee or Neil Peart, who joins the band later. The one guy, the bassist, he blows off a gig because he wants to go to some party or a dance or something. And mm-hmm. so, so then Alex grabs uh, Getty to fill in. And uh, it's him and John Rutsey. They form this band in Canada. They're, like I said, they're in high school. So they do a lot of kind of touring around local high schools and under 18 clubs because Mm -hmm. they couldn't play in clubs that where alcohol was served or whatever. Because they're so young. Yeah. And so that's kind of where they started. So they formed in 1968 and they didn't, 
they didn't get their first album until 1974. So that was weird to me. Like, yeah, as a, as a person who was just doing research on the band, normally you get a band and they form and then they get an album right out. Yeah. So but like these if, guys were, were marinating for a while. Was like, it Canada? Is that why? Like, it's the, it's the well, conversion. It's the currency. <laughs> <laughs> sure. They're I, worth like half the amount of American bands. I think it's uh, partly because they were still young when they formed. They're still mm-hmm. in, in high school, middle school. When and they, were they when a they cover formed. band like most young bands? Yeah. Well, so. and they, uh, you know, much like a, if a band was to start right now, it would be a bunch of guys playing Blink-182 covers or something like that. Stop yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, come on. It's a simple probably true. Biscuit. Come on. Right. So <laughs> Roll it. it was kind of like that as they were playing, you know, the high school scene and they were playing a lot of cover music. And then ultimately their first sort of release, they had a single, which was an original song. And then uh, they had a cover of a Buddy Holly song, um, which let's have a Buddy Holly show. But that's, wow. <laughs> I love Buddy Holly. You just throw that I in was there? Say, we, we, went, we went far back with Beach Boys. You want to go all the way back to Buddy, Buddy Holly. Holly? I love Buddy Holly. Actually, uh, love Buddy Holly. So they basically were playing this sort of high school scene, and really, what broke them um, into getting more popular was the drinking age in Canada changed to eighteen. So as soon as they turned eighteen, so drunk people liked them more. Yeah. Well, basically, they could play in clubs. <laughs> yeah, and oh, it's a different okay. scene. Because think of it this way: Ru- lower your standard, get a little drunk. <laughs> yeah, Rush, yeah. this this band that gets started. You know, there's this upstart band that's pretty much in the in let's say the image of Led Zeppelin. Okay, so like classic rock. Yeah, classic rock. They're playing high school bands. Can you imagine dancing to like Led Zeppelin at a... At a high school band. I saw some footage and it was like a class assembly. I think the students were maybe 16. Yeah. And Rush is up there and, and it was some of the older members in Rush. And they're like, get ready to have some energy. And the class kind of just stood there blank faced. Yeah. But they were rocking out. Yeah. But then you take that and you put it in a club or a bar. Yeah. And it's just, it's a better energy because you're not there to just like dance. You're there to socialize, have a good time. So they were good, uh, a better fit well, for I wanna, that. I want to flash forward real quick because we're talking about this band who, uh, who played high school gigs. Yeah. For like four years before they got an album out or five years and i was like well you know how big is this band i looked it up and they rank 80 rush ranks 88th in the u.s with sales of 25 million units in the country this is just u.s stuff they have uh had worldwide over 40 million units sold as of 2017 and they've been awarded 24 gold, 14 platinum, and three multi-platinum albums. This is a big band. They have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and they're also officers of the Order of Canada. Yeah, wow. most right. importantly. <laughs> that is my goal, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of that, they were inducted to the Canadian Hall of Fame in 1994, mm-hmm. but then they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the real one, in 2013. Which, yeah, well, so they, I'm sure they, we'll talk a little bit more about that, so but yes, that took a minute. They are bigger in Canada, and all our, our listeners that are in Canada are probably like, well, yeah, Russia's big. <laughs> it's like our for, it's second biggest fan base yeah. in Canada. <laughs> but that's the thing. I yeah. think Canadians have a huge love for this band, and maybe it's because they saw them in high school and it's nostalgia. Maybe. Yeah. Well, and it, what's interesting with them, uh, there's a couple of things that I think about when it comes to Rush. And this is just kind of going at like an overall intro before we get super deep dive. They're musicians, musicians. And they're more considered a music for maybe a more intellectual fan. They're, there's a fan. You're, you're just basically, yeah. Eh, Rush fans are smart. That's, like super me saying, smart. that's like me saying March babies are the cutest. You well, know? they are. Well, they well, are. It, they, they seem are. like a Stanley Kubrick. A little bit. Of music, because there wow. are so many... So many levels of nerd right now. It's true, but there are so <laughs> many musicians like Kirk Hammett of Metallica, yeah. Billy Corgan, Trent Reznor of yeah. Nine Inch Nails. Like, he loves them. Yeah. Like, all these modern musicians look at them as if that's what their influence was. Dave Grohl. Yeah, Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl. Totally. Yeah. 
They were actually uh, well, Foo Fighters played with them. At and the for me, like I knew, I knew some of the songs, but like one of the, I remember one of the my first introductions to Rush, like proper Rush, I should say. Actually, actually, yeah, let's go around and get our first introductions. Well, this, and I don't even know if this is my first because I probably heard like songs like Tom Sawyer before this and just like liked it as a classic rock song. Yeah. But I remember it was uh, uh, Bare Naked Ladies Grade 9. They sing this song called Grade 9 where they're yeah. talking about their experience yeah. in Grade 9. And at one point during a musical interlude, they break into do 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 Yeah, they play bits yeah. of Tom Sawyer. And, and it was yeah. just one of those things where I went, "What? what is this? I don't get it. Like, why are they playing this song in the middle of a song about their ninth grade experience? Yeah. And so I kind of looked it up and found out, oh, they're playing a Rush song. Rush is a Canadian band. They're a Canadian band. So it kind of had this connection between Bare Naked Ladies to Rush. Bare Naked Ladies are Canadian? Yes. You didn't know that? When you do a Canadian rock Alanis show. Alanis Morissette, Bare Naked yeah. Ladies. Oh, everyone knew that. <laughs> Justin Bieber. She's not so polite. Drake. Okay, take it easy. <laughs> All right, kid. So, so kind of going back to uh, some of their influences, I kind of found it interesting that they formed the same year as like Led Zeppelin, who was an influence, and yeah. Yes, who was an influence, and I don't know how many people out there know who Yes is because they're another prog rock band. Yeah. But save it for next season. Yeah. Save it for our Yes show. Save oh, it for geez, your Yes please show. Please no. <laughs> but so yeah, I found it very interesting that they they formed the same year as some of these big name bands, and they kind of were influences of theirs. But because they didn't get a real start, like a, a professional start, well, until and um, so and I I decided to prepare for this show since I wasn't going to be able to do a lot of the research. I was like, you know, I want to give. Rush a chance. And with our Beach Boys show, I ended up listening to all 30 of their albums, uh, their studio albums. And I said, I'm going to do this with Rush. So I started with their very first album, uh, which was, like we said, 1974. It's just self-titled. Yeah. And uh, I listened to all 19 albums just finishing today. And one of the first things I said, do you guys remember one of the first things I said when I started this? And I said it and Zach is like, that's what everyone says. Yeah. They sound a lot like Led Zeppelin. I listened yeah. to that first album, Rush, and I was like, this sounds like a Led Zeppelin cover band. It sounds like The Who and Led Zeppelin. Yeah. And, like really and, derivative, and but still solid music. The Who and Led Zeppelin are two big time influences of theirs. Mm-hmm. And then Yes is kind of more of a later influence. And we'll but that's the thing. Is, that it's more. weird they started at the same, basically started at the same time, Led Zeppelin and Rush. Led Zeppelin gets their album out early. Then Rush comes along later, yeah. and I thought if they would have gotten their albums out at the same time, they would have been compared to each other, like in a good way. But this is—it sounded like all the reviews at the beginning were like they're just Led Zeppelin knockoff. Well, off. I mean, and that—that's the thing—is like Led Zeppelin. I mean, two of the members came from the Yardbirds, who is a an established band, so they're kind of already kind of like a super group almost. Mm-hmm. Rush was still in middle school when Led Zeppelin started turning out music. So, all right. okay, so that was a big influence. Yeah, so they're like, we'll carry influence. off of that. Ken, what was your Rush introduction, or at least your your early memories of Rush? Shout out to my friend Griff. Uh, it would be road trips with Griff. Uh, we'd go to like Las Vegas sometimes when we deal with breakups in college, and he'd be like, "Hey, by the way, he's a typical Rush fan. I love you, man. But <laughs> man, I love you, man. Hey, but he is definitely Whoa. a t-shirt, jeans wearing Rush fan. That's the thing about Rush fans, by the way. Yeah, is would you find a Rush? fan like if you mention you're doing a rush show to a rush fan the texts i got in prep for the show he even said how's the album listening going like throughout this process i'm like leave me alone all right it's kind of sounding the same right now uh but he we go on road trips and he play these songs and we always take turns playing music and i'd wait and i'd be like how long is this song he's like it's 20 minutes like don't worry about it i'm like what (laughs) and so i always kind of went man i can't wait for this song to be over but they were in my head. Like, I knew Rush music. And now when I listen to them, for example, on this first album, I'm like, I know that song. And I was very grateful. Wow. Well, and yeah. I, I, wow, you guys are going to have to help me. The, the intro I did, the Spirit the, of Radio. Spirit of Radio. Which album was that on? Uh, that's uh, Permanent Waves. Permanent Waves. That's their one, two, three, four, fifth, sixth, seventh album. 
it took me that long until I went, I know this song. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you sent a message to us and you finally, I finally had a song. Had the heard song. For example, you didn't know this song. This is Working Man from their first album. From Rush, from the first album. Wait, is this considered their first single? So yeah. this is the song that broke them. So this is kind of an interesting you story. You say broke them, is it, it sounds like a bad thing. Yeah, well, it, it uh, put them on the scene. There you go. So it actually, they, they have this album, they put it together. Um, the manager that was kind of trying to help them get through things, which is just a buddy of theirs in high school, um, kind of got everything together and they, they had recorded an album. You'd kind of mentioned it, Ryan, but the current lineup when they recorded this album was... Uh, Getty Lee, who was the vocalist and the bass player. The really high-pitched guy who sings like this yes. the entire time Basically. he's singing. Especially, <laughs> especially young, because he had a little bit more growl. He sounded exactly like Robert Plant. Yep. But then you had the guitar player and backup vocalist, Alex Lifeson. And then you had the drummer, John Rutsey. So they cut That's this. not Neil Peart. Oh, we'll get there. So he, they had uh, this album, and it was going out, and it ended up in the hands of a woman named Donna Halper in Cleveland of WMMS Radio. And she was looking for a song long enough that it would allow a DJ to go use the restroom <laughs> while it was playing on the air. Oh, man. That's great. Because a lot Been of the songs there? at the time well, were like I was two and a half minutes. Some of these songs they have, Kent could go to the bathroom in that time. <laughs> yeah, it takes a long time in the 14 bathroom. minutes, that's all. Don't worry well, about my, it. No, my definition of seven, uh, the 70s music, and this is this broad stereotype. Like in a Gata DeVita sort of stuff? No, my, my definition of 70s music is people did not know when to end songs because right. they were too high. Yeah. That's, yeah. In my uh-huh. mind, that's 70s music. And the, I, like some of these songs, I'm like, wow, guys, just having a jam session at this point, which is fine. Is that okay for Joel to say? Is that, yeah, is that fair? It's probably. You can get mad at him on the show. I do all the time. <laughs> well, not, I'm not saying, I'm not, the thing is, it's a lot of the classic rock isn't my style for that reason. Yeah. But I know a lot of people like it. They just like to hear the band members kind of play off each other and enjoy the energy of the song and, and change. A lot of instrumental breaks, right? Oh, Not yes, a lot yeah, of yeah, lyrics, yeah. right? Yeah. And they wanted to use that to their advantage, using an instrumental break to give yourself a bathroom break. Well, she listened to this song, Working Man, and yes, it was long, but she said, this embodies the blue-collar nature of Cleveland. Cleveland will love this song. And sure enough, they go and they play it on the air, and the phone starts ringing off the hook. When's the new Led Zeppelin album coming out? Uh-huh. That's what people all started to think. And they're like, no, it's this new act called Rush. And then people started to get really interested because it really just resonated with these blue collar down home people. Hmm. Now, you say resonated. Are we talking the music resonated or the lyrics of Working Man resonated? Uh, I think the lyrics. Lyrics. Yeah. Do you guys know happen to know the lyrics? So the, the first lyric is, I get up at seven and I go to work at nine. Got no time for living yet because I'm working all the time. I want to point out, he just cited that from memory, too. Like, I was actually pulling it, like, to see if I could, like, <laughs> yeah. read them off to you guys. He doesn't need the internet. Yeah. But well done, Ryan. Thank you. And I get that. Like, you know, when I listened to 9 to 5 by Dolly Parton, I was like, yeah. <laughs> 9 to <laughs> 5. Dolly Parton's your rush? Yeah, she's my rush. <laughs> yeah, so then, basically, they, and this was a, a self, sort of self-published album, and this kind of got them the start that they needed to be able to become an opening act and actually go on tour and get but signed. why the name Rush? Like, I, I kind of, it's so simple, but it's also, I don't know. What Man. I read is, uh, is it Rutsy was the drummer, his brother, like mm-hmm. apparently they were supposed to go on, like their gig was starting and he's like, you guys need a name, call yourselves Rush. That's yeah. what I read on. So the brother made it up. Yeah. Yes, the and brother of the drummer who's no longer yeah. in the band. Well, it's wow. kind of interesting because John Rutsy was kind of the, the initial push for the band. Um, he's kind of the guy that kind of pushed them to do more and kind of get out there more. Mm-hmm. They hit it big. They signed with Anthem, record label. So before they cut the album, John Rutsey was supposed to be the lyrics guy. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of 
had a panic attack or whatever and, and didn't do it. And so Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson just kind of threw some lyrics together at the last minute. I think Rutsy probably did one or two songs of lyrics wise, and then the rest were Lee and Lyson. Can, can I make an observation here, yeah. Ryan? Yeah. Uh, the observation I made, and I made this to to Kent and Zach already via messenger. Uh, there's actually a lot of conversations we had as I was listening to the albums because I was like trying to process it. But you, you mentioned they threw the lyrics together last minute. I feel like, and this is not for all Rush songs. Please keep that in mind. But I feel like they are very much a music is first, lyrics are just to fill in the gaps in the music. Yeah. I think like, for the fans, nonsensical, know, though, right? Well, yeah. that's what because I mean. Like some, some, of these, like some of these are actually using like science fiction references and fantasy references so, and philosophy references. But that comes with Peart, the, right? The lyrics definitely change when we get to Peart, and we'll talk more about that when, when we get okay. there. Because like it felt like a lot of times they were just kind of putting words in that would sound cool rather than trying to make yeah, sense. Yeah, so like if you look at the, the lyrics on this first album, they're a lot more simple. They're a lot more kind of rock and roll-ish, like your, your Van Halen's or your Def Leppard's or whatever, where they're kind of simple songs right where they talk more about women and partying and all that kind of stuff that's kind of your typical rock song yeah even in the 70s not rivendell not rivendell <laughs> no yeah. that's about lord of the rings <laughs> yeah. they wrote a song about lord of the rings so did Led Zeppelin. So, well mean. and let's let's go ahead and usher in the neil peart era so basically ryan was kind of leading to this as they broke big but for remind me it was health reasons so right? health they, reasons so john russi had uh, diabetes and they and he was kind diabetes. of what they say was the uh wilford uh, brimley was in rush <laughs> <laughs> he was he's their manager he they well, they said self-destructive behavior he was known for his self-destructive behavior with uh, with on top of that with his uh disease that he failed to manage okay they didn't think that he'd be able to handle the the rigors of touring mm-hmm. and so the band agrees to split ways. And so they held auditions for a drummer. From what I saw and from what I read, uh, they had five people come in yeah. to audition. And I think it was Neil Peart came in. I think he was fourth. And there was this lanky guy that they really didn't like his look. They said he wouldn't fit in a rock band. Not that these two <laughs> yeah. look like rockers. Yeah. Well, he was already in a band. Neil yeah. Peart was in a band. It was called J.R. Flood. Yeah, that's and, right. And uh, it's funny, uh, Getty Lee, who is not exactly a looker himself. He was in J.R. Flood? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, which I we did that show in season two, by so the way. Uh, uh, he said Getty, uh, Getty Lee said he looked kind of goofy. Yeah. And Alex thought he's not nearly cool enough to be in this band. Yeah, so, that's funny. <laughs> he starts playing drums, and he's basically a prodigy. Yeah. And would we say there would be no rush without Neil Peart? Oh, for sure. 100%. Yeah. He's, he's, by all accounts, from everything I can tell, considered one of the greatest drummers of all time. Rolling Stone gives him fourth greatest drummer of yeah, all time. So what? Yeah. Fourth greatest. He but, didn't even make top three? I know. He's, Root. So Who he's behind He's behind John Bonham of Led Zeppelin, and then Keith Moon of The Who, and then Ginger Baker from Kareem. So those are, you know... Okay. Three big time... But Neil Peart comes in, and yeah. not only is he like a prodigy drummer, but he's also... The lyricist, like he came up yeah. with. Because well, he's a nerd. Most, yeah. He would you say most of the lyrics the though came from Neil Peart after he joined the band? Yes. Like, he, what percentage would you say were his songs versus anyone else's in the band? Ninety-nine percent. Wow. So he's the Brian Wilson of the group. Yeah. Just saying. So, so <laughs> Neil, <laughs> what are you looking at me for? All smug. <laughs> it's kind of interesting story. Like Neil Peart, he grew up on a farm. So okay. He had a farm implement store, right? And so this Corvette drives up in front of the store one day, and this record guy comes out and says, "We want you to." audition for this band called Rush and he's like oh okay and so his dad was like really encouraging him to do it because that's kind of what he did his whole through his years through high school was just play the drums right he's like don't work in the family business get out of here <laughs> he's like this Save is yourself. your chance when they finally meet Neil Peart they notice that he's like this really book read kind of guy he had all these books that he's been reading and like I said Lee and Lifeson were more 
about the music. They didn't really care about lyrics. And so they said, hey, you read a lot of books. Why don't you write the lyrics? And so he said, okay, I'll do that. And so that's kind of history. And keep in mind what's happening. They just have this album. They have this single that goes big. They're they're about to go on tour, right? They're about to go on tour. They're going to be opening for a a couple of different bands. Kiss. Including Kiss, Mm -hmm. who thought that they were just the Led Zeppelin of Canada. So (laughs) Kiss said, hey, you're (laughs) going to open for us when we tour Canada. Yeah. But they're like, hey, we just had to replace our drummer. You have like two weeks to learn these songs, and then we're going on tour. Oh, by the way, while we're on tour, we're noticing that you read a lot of books want to write the lyrics too oh my gosh. and so they kind of really just threw this guy in and well, it, it seems yeah. kind of i don't know this this seemed kind of weird to me in the history maybe you guys can make sense of it but it seemed to me that these guys formed a band and they were like you do all the work and then we'll play it on stage that's kind of what it felt like to me that neil pert was like they, they threw this all him at, the, at that point it was like i mean they're very all the talented work. musicians they, they are are they well, yeah, because <laughs> Lee and Lifeson, like I said, they're, they're more the ones that write the music, and Neil Peart writes most of the lyrics. So okay. most yeah. of the music arrangements and things are done by Lee and Lifeson. So, okay. so essentially, and, and so it does do contribute. Yeah. Peart is, is writing poems, and Getty is making them singable. Okay, so, so he Rush. plays the bass guitar, and he sings in, like, ultra-soprano. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. we have Rush formed at this yeah. point. Rush, as, as it comes to be known for the next 40 years, now exists. Okay. The, the, it's the end of the first movie. <laughs> and there's 39 more movies to exactly, go. Exactly, exactly. And they start doing this thing, kind of like how we talked about the Beach Boys. It was like an album a year for about a decade there. Yeah. So the the next two albums are both released in the same year. So 1975, they release uh, Fly By Night and Caress of Steel. And I don't know how many months is between those two. Fly By Night was written while they were on tour, doing their tour for their, their first album. So... This song is called By Tour and the Snow Dog. By Tour, can you spell that, Kent? B Y T O R. And the Snow Dog. And the Snow Dog. This was actually George R. R. Martin's first novel. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, by the way, if you want to hear the sampler platter of Rush, if you really want to understand Rush and prove Kent and Ryan and Zach wrong that, don't, that women don't like this, uh, <laughs> you can actually find it at bakingstyle.com. We're going to put our Spotify playlist there so you mm-hmm. can see it. So why a song like that? Like, why is that Peart's influence yes, all of a sudden? Definitely, that's Peart's influence. So so By Tour and the Snow Dog were actually two dogs that one of the stage crew or the roadies, I don't remember exactly who it was, they're, they're his dogs that he took with him on the tour. Okay. And so By Tour, Biter, lives up to his name. He's kind of this vicious... <laughs> I just got that. <laughs> it's like we're playing D&D. It, well, it I am By Tour, the Snow Dog. <laughs> So Bytor is uh, this kind of aggressive dog and can bark all the time. And Snow Dog was this kind of more peaceful, white, snow white dog. And so, they wrote a yeah. song about so that. So fans are starting yes. to see which direction their music is headed. Are they yeah. happy about so, it? I mean, at this time, I mean, Peart's probably reading a lot of fantasy novels. And so he wants do, to write his own. Do you know if own. the other guys were into fantasy too? Or do they just kind of go um, with... I think if, they just kind of go along. If he comes in there's like, guys, I want to write, write a song about Rivendell, the Elven Kingdom. And they're like, okay, whatever, Neil. Uh, just right away. One thing I noticed and I love about Rush is they're not your typical rock band they're like the documentary calls them tragically unhip yeah yes. like yeah. throughout time and rush look at was, a picture of them and you'll know understand what that means getty lee said anytime we went to the hotel room of kiss it was insane it was always a show and they were doing whatever they were doing mm-hmm. meanwhile they were very uncomfortable it was basically me at a party rush was just <laughs> sitting there going i need to get out of here because most of these guys well two of them they married their high school sweethearts yes mm-hmm. and on tour 
just kind of hung out and watched TV in their hotel room. Mm-hmm. They were and, never the crazy partiers. And Neil would take his downtime and he would read. He would read more. Like, not so, your typical rock no, band from they the didn't 70s. Do the, they never really did the rock star thing. Yeah. They would just kind of hunker down and, and chill reading. out. <laughs> they are the exact opposite of Kiss in that way. Which yeah. I guess it makes sense why they lasted 40 years. And Kiss would, like, make fun of them. You but know, Kiss has lasted about that long, too. They shouldn't. Yeah. They shouldn't. They've had 19 <laughs> farewell tours. Jeez. <laughs> But yeah, the, the the music then started to take on this this different form. And again, it's getting more sci-fi based. They even tell a story where they played this new album, Fly By Night, for Paul Stanley of Kiss. He's the, the le- main lead singer. And uh, he's just, you could tell he didn't get it. He just didn't, it wasn't because Kiss's music is very simple and this was getting all crazy and storytelling. And, and so it was clear that they were forming a sort of a different identity and, and tr- distancing themselves a little bit from that. One, one thing that was funny, one of the reasons outside of his health that John Rutsey left the band is because he hated touring. You know who else hates touring? Neil Peart, the guy that replaced him. Yeah. Totally hates touring. Just that's why. But they the toured reason. all the time at this yeah. point, right? Well, and, and they would continue to, I mean, we're talking 200 shows a year. This is easy. the band to see while touring. Yeah. Oh, yeah. By the way, Ryan, how many times have you seen these guys in concert? Uh, I'm not sure. So I've I've been to every tour since 1997. Um, Can we say more than ballpark? 12? So let's count them. Two hours later. So I've been to seven concerts. I would consider you lucky. This is a band having done this research and now listen to the albums. And Joel, let me know if you agree. Mm-hmm. I would have liked to have seen these guys in concert. I hear in con- the concert is what really makes kind of the, the music come alive. Yeah, but also. And this is maybe something, uh, this is talking down the road a bit, but they're done. And you mentioned Neil Peart passed away, but they ended up, their last album was in 2012. 12. Yeah. yeah. And that was the last time they were like. Yeah, they toured in 15. And I have to say, I mean, I understand they did it because of they had to. This was sad circumstances happening. But a band that says, you know what, we're good. And they do one last farewell tour and they're done. That's respectable, yeah. I feel. Instead of playing until you're. I don't know. I saw Rolling Stones and they were incredible. Incredible. At their ages. Hmm. At their ages. I like that caveat. (laughs) No, no, even then. (laughs) I mean, but like they could do that at their ages. Yeah. Yeah. And you bring up a good point. This is a band that is and always has made its name from the live performance. They do better sales of tickets to their show because they're such rabid fans who are willing to go literally hundreds of times. And they're paying Canadian dollars. <laughs> even, even in America, you have to pay Canadian dollars. They, right? That's what the quarters are good for yeah. when you find one. They'll have way better performances on their tours as far as finances go because they're having these fans who are willing to pay $100, $150 to get in, but they're not selling that many $20 albums. You know, relatively. Interesting. It's, yeah. it's very strange. This is absolutely uh, and always has been a live act. And worldwide, too. Yeah. I, I read uh, they did a concert for 60,000 people down in Brazil about 10 years ago. Yeah. Like, incredible. Yeah. It's, and, then, it's and then a couple of years after that, they went and toured Europe, and they uh, they recorded their show that they did in Germany. So it's a world, yeah. This is a worldwide yeah. band. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's interesting to me, though, just how, like... They did fly a little under the radar for me, where I didn't really know much about them and until I started studying them. Honestly, they kind of flew under the radar for a lot of people. I mean, they were kind of bigger in the seventies, I would say, mm-hmm. and uh, and then they had their their peak was probably in the eighties. Okay, well, so we'll we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get so there. let's pull it back then. So they have their second album. They're starting to get a little fantastical. <laughs> well, like uh, on that album, uh, my favorite song, which is also pretty radio friendly, is called "Fly By Night." It's actually the the title track of that one mm-hmm. and it's you've probably heard it if you've listened to classic radio it does come on pretty frequently and it's interesting that they're on the same album doing something that's radio friendly and kind of far out and you kind of see that continue on maybe one thing also to mention before we move on to the next album their song anthem 
is based off of Ayn Rand's a short story. So I guess it's a poem. Well, no, it's it's a short it's a short novel. Oh, it's a novella, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So it's it's based off of that, and it kind of goes through uh, objectivism, which is this, which was a huge influence for a lot of classic yeah. rock bands. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it's funny; it's so ideological, and they had yes. they received a lot of criticism for their support of well, even having Ayn Randian references in their music. Yes. and they're like yeah. our songs and our theme albums are anti-totalitarianism. Yeah, and so like say that ten times exactly. <laughs> so it, it it is a theme that comes up a lot. It really only gets kind of more ingrained in them. And in a couple albums, there's a whole A side of a record based on yeah. the Fountainhead. So. so so let's go ahead and, and go on to the Crest of Steel. And so this is Do where we they, have to. <laughs> it's not great, except for this song. So the Crest of Steel is uh, they increase their fantasies stories they're long format songs they have two on this album and the second one the fountain of lameth uh takes up the whole b side of the album yeah so i mean okay kids let's bring it back here yeah i was gonna say uh, joel explain back this in, back in the day there were records this is these, when you were buying music right <laughs> no <laughs> this is when i was I, I was still my my dad and my brother's records but like the records only had so much space there was an a side and then you had to flip it over and listen to the b side the other side of the record uh, picture like a compact disc or a DVD that you had to turn over to get the other side of the story. Mm-hmm. And these and they only had so much space. So they would fill an entire side with like a 20-minute song. Yeah. And then that was just that side of the record was yeah. one song, well, which is weird to think about. And it was, uh, if you were thinking ahead, you could really do it like sort of classical music in that you could have movements based on what it, the A side or the B side, or you could tell one part of the story were on the A side. movements the reason why the DJs wanted these longer songs? <laughs> yep. Put your hands <laughs> up. Yeah. Hey. But uh, yeah, so uh, at least for me, you kind of like to see what was the theme of the A side or the B side or whatever. It's kind I, of, it's and a fun, I just think I, and there were, I, guys, I, guys, some of these songs guys, really we're losing did. the men now. We're losing the other half of the audience. I just want to say that some of the songs on that album really did kind of like speak to me, in particular the one, I Think I'm Going Bald. What a goofy yeah. song. What a, I, It's terrible. So there's only, for me, there's only, well, I'm, I mean, I like uh, the Necromancer, which is also... 20 based, minutes long. Well, it's not 20 minutes long. Is it not? Fountains of Lameth is 19. I think the Necromancer is like Ugh. 10. Is that a Hobbit reference? Yes. Of yeah. course So it the is. Necromancer yeah. is another, it's a, an attempt to uh, write a Tolkien novel, a Tolkien story. Yeah. And it even references Willowdale in there, if you listen to it. It's kind of interesting, because that's where they're from, is Willowdale. What, um, what's our sampling from this album? Uh, it's actually Bastille Day. This is I probably the... Eh, eh, oh, Oh, gross. This is the best song on this album. It is the best song on the album, Definitely. It got me extra credit in high school because we were studying the French Revolution and someone's like, hey, uh, for bonus points, what classic rock band wrote a song about the French Revolution? I'm like, Rush, Bastille Day, Let Them Eat Cake. Yes. <laughs> Such so that, a nerd. That's like, wow. the, it's like one of the first li- opening lines is... Uh, there's no there, bread, let them eat cake. There's no bread, so let them eat cake. So from what I read, this album was a minor to massive disappointment for everyone for the record label for fans yeah so this was kicks off what they call their down the tube store yeah is because people kind of lost interest and so they went from touring with kiss to opening these small like um state fair type um, yeah it was a step back so yeah a step back did the label drop them or did they threaten them at this so point? they threatened them they mm-hmm. said what we need is more of your stuff that you had on your first two albums so kind of more commercially friendly. friendly yeah and what did they release let's play it now <laughs> ryan explain this please 
You gotta do this. Hey. 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 What, are we at a football hey. game right now? What is happening? <laughs> I just every concert, every concert. How do you know to do that, kid? Because he said it for the first time. Oh. So that was uh, 2112. That's part of Overture. So is it, is it 2112 were, or is it, is it 2112? 2112. 2112. Okay. They were told to pull it back and make it more commercially friendly. And the opening song, a prologue, is another 20-minute song. Yeah. And it has... And this is side A. So this, side is your, a, yeah. this is your first side. This is the side where all your best songs Which, are supposed to be. If you've ever heard like B-side, it's because normally the album would put the best songs up front on the A-side. Mm-hmm. And then the B-side was like the other songs they wanted to the do. The filler so. songs. Yeah. yeah. So like, and in singles, they would give out. They'd give the A-side was the, the main song and then the B-side was lesser. But you're, you're saying that they put this experimental song as like their front and foremost song. And yes. they said, basically, they threw this out there knowing they may, may not be a band anymore. They may yeah. have to go back to their day jobs. So basically, they got together and said, we'd rather play the music we want to play instead of caving to the man. And we just want to do what we want to do. And so we're going to put caving this to album the man out. A. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little Canadian reference. Yeah. <laughs> Our Canadian fans are going to hate me on this show. Yeah. yeah. So, so they... They said, well, we're just going to do what we want to do. And the, and the album did really well. So Yeah, they took a big risk with this, you know, doing a concept album. The A-side has uh, it's like five different movements. They do play the first two movements. So it's about the first like six, seven minutes of, of the album uh, in concert and things like that. But uh, honestly, it, was, it became super influential for a lot of up-and-coming musicians. Is this where Rush becomes Rush? Yeah. Like, is this I, really the progressive part of the I prog rock so. days? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, Neil Peart disagrees, but I think so. When Does he think from the very beginning? He, he thinks later on. Oh, okay. When we get to a different album. I mean, we kind of saw it with By Torn the Snow Dog and Fly By Night, and then Fountains of Lameth, which was 19 minutes long. It's almost 20 Fountains minutes. of Lameth? Yeah. Mm. Lament. Mm. I think. Lament. I think. I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember Hold reading on. that. Does it matter? <laughs> no. <laughs> and you can tell Ryan's way more hardcore because I'm like, oh, I always skip that song. Oh, I skip that song too. <laughs> yeah. I skip the entire Crest of Steel album. You do. <laughs> uh, except for Bastille Day. Yeah. yeah. Well, I like Lakeside Park on that one too. That's, that's, pretty that's good. the other one right, I put Joe, on my We're not playlist. moving back. We need to move yeah. forward. Okay, moving moving forward. forward for the audience. <laughs> so the A side of 2112 is this 20 minute epic that tells a really interesting story. Um, and I highly recommend listening to it if you are interested in Rush. And you're under the influence. And <laughs> what? well, that's what the B side is for, including uh, there's a song called Passage to Bangkok, which I won't go into on this show, Passage this very family friend show. Hard man <laughs> so I would say that uh, Passage to Bangkok is kind of like their surf. Surfing USA, and then Surfing USA. Excuse me, I've never heard this song in my life except for if everybody had a Passage to Bangkok. (laughs) (laughs) So in in, in, uh, Passage to Bangkok, or sorry, in Surfing USA, in Surfing USA, uh, the Beach Boys are talking about all the great places to surf along the West Coast, right? Sure. And Passage to Bangkok Rush takes you on a tour of the world where you can get the best um, herbs, herbs, Herbs. yes, Ah, spices, keep it family friendly, KFC. So should we jump to the next album, where they just continued the weirdness? Yeah, Farewell to Kings. Sure. Came out in I, I uh, 1977. Was... No, it's, it's a great album. But the song that you chose to play here for everyone... What uh, song did I choose? I ...is forget. a very popular movie starring Olivia Newton-John. <gasps> I love this song. I just watched this movie. <laughs> this doesn't sound like the movie at all. I don't, Xanadu! I don't know <laughs> Xanadu! The Xanadu in this is where it's Getty Xanadu. Lee... So Getty Lee spends a lot of time singing about honeydew in this. Song. Yeah. So this is actually uh, this, the poem Kublai Khan. And I forget the name of the guy that wrote Kublai Khan, the poem. Yeah. Um, uh, Taylor, uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Yeah. 
So anyway, it's, it's, I have that in my notes. And I, it was I actually, did not know that from memory. <laughs> it's actually inspired by Citizen Kane because there's that uh, poem right at the beginning of Citizen Kane and something about Kublai Khan. And technically, Kent, I was gonna. I just want to call you out on this: is that this album came out 1977, and didn't come out until 1980. So it was influenced by this song, right? Yeah, sure. You're getting on us for wasting time? Let's get on with it, gentlemen. <laughs> if you bring up Xanadu, I'm going to talk about Xanadu. <laughs> if we're getting Olivia Newton-John to Greece, show. then we're getting to Greece, too, and we do not have time for that. So Xanadu, in Greece too. I mean, this is kind of neat because this is kind of their movement into becoming their smallest orchestra. So they, at this point in their career, they had this um, desire to be the smallest orchestra so they could have all these different things. And you kind of heard a little bit in there that Neil is playing wind chimes and he's playing with tubular bells. Things. Yeah, and there's all these different things. So this song uh, actually has uh, Alex plays a 12 string and a six string, and then a- and Getty has That's 18 strings. Yes, and then <laughs> math. <laughs> Thanks, then Joel. <laughs> Getty also plays the four string bass and a 12 string as, as a rhythm guitar. So they're doing all this different stuff, and this is also the first song that they started to incorporate synthesizers in their music. So they have oh. different mm-hmm. synth pedals. It was the eight. it was the late 70s. Everyone I, was using synthesizers. I know. What's wrong with synthesizers? We'll, we'll get, get into that in about 10 years. Uh, so like um, this is kind of kind of more yes influence coming in so a more kind of concept albums more synthesizers all that kind of stuff it's one of their best regarded albums this one um because you know it's really leaning into their sound again they're they're continuing on the success of 2112 but when we say success it's success from the fans perspective not the critics these guys are lambasted by the critics for their last album and this one they're still being compared from what i understand to like led zeppelin Mm -hmm. and the who and stuff like that like they're not as good were they ever able to shake that not really. I mean, they saw commercial success later on, but the and, and we'll kind of talk about it. They are not en- enjoyed by these critics, especially like Rolling Stone just hates them. Not the the, the magazine, not the band, but <laughs> just absolutely hates them. And they basically lead the charge Rolling of anti rush people. So I have a quote here from Billy Corgan, and he's from Smashing Pumpkins, yeah. a huge fan of Rush. Huge. And he says, by the end of the day, rock is a people's game. And the people generally and consistently voted for this band, mm-hmm. saying that the people. Absolutely. I've always loved Rush. So and record sales. By the way, cult critic, fan base, very cult fan. That's what base. I was going to yes. ask though. Is like so maybe critics didn't like them, but how were they commercially? Were, were people buying the albums? Were they successful in that regard already? Well, definitely in Canada, America's Hat loved them. I think their, <laughs> I think their peak, came in just a few years. But let's get there. Yeah. So I mean, and this this album is pretty good. There's a lot of songs on this one I like. Um, so a farewell to kings is the title track. It's a great song. It talks about kind of uh, people that are fake, I guess, in a little bit, um, or the people in power that are kind of beating down on the on the on the populace. So mm-hmm. kind of more of that libertarian type mindset again. And then, uh, did they ever sing about love? Like other yeah, than the so first actually, album or two? So the other song that's on here is uh, "Closer to the Heart," which kind of starts a little bit different. Isn't that by Trent Reznor? Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, Closer to the Heart starts off with the men who hold high places must be the ones to start to mold Mold. a new reality. Closer Closer to the Heart. heart. Another very popular um, classic rock station song. Yeah, and it's it's only two and a half minutes or almost three minutes, so it's kind of your more typical... They weren't even trying. Yeah, it's like... (laughs) So and actually Neil Neil had help writing the lyrics on that song. So Hemispheres is is uh, the peak of their uh, kind of progressive sound. So progressive rock, maybe we ought to define what that is. I don't and know. let's play a clip of this as okay, we're explaining go ahead. that. 
Oh man, I was hoping you'd play the trees. I wish, but Ryan shows. I love the trees. But this song is called uh, La Via Strangiato. An exercise in self-indulgence. Don't forget the parenthetical. Yeah, so <laughs> so this song is about a dream that Alex Lifeson had. It's all instrumental. It's nine minutes long. Yeah, okay, so I should. Cl- I want to bring something up right now. Is that uh, Ryan gave us a very thorough uh, Google, Google spreadsheet of like notes for each one of these things. Mm-hmm. And I saw this one coming up as he said, this song is offered altered and live shows to include new parts and pieces based, based on a dream of one of the band members. And I was like, oh, this is going to be crazy. It's instrumental. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's an instrumental song. And I'm like, how? How? So how is that about his it's dream? It's the feeling, Joel. So it's, it's all feeling. about telling the story through music. And I think that this song does that. Um, and that's kind of... Did Neil but have like through the years, off? this song has gotten longer so. and longer and longer, they, or it just has a different, uh, different intro, or it has a different feel to it. Um, the most recent one that I saw on the the Time Machine tour in 2011, it started as a polka. Yeah. Wow, it was great. It's just it was such a bizarre thing to me that I was expecting one thing when I read your notes, and then when the song came up, it was completely different. Yeah, completely different. Yeah. But thank so, you for the, I was going to say thank you for the guide, by the way. That little fun. section that I played there has a lot of transition, transitional pieces. And that's kind of like one of the, the big things of prog rock is kind of the odd time signatures uh, and then musical transitions for transitioning from time signatures from like. So this is not manufactured or, pop music. This isn't no. like regular predictable yeah. beats and, and melodies. And one of the things that, that Rush is um, praised for is how well they do their transitions. They, they transition from time pieces or time signatures without you really even noticing it. And so like to, to contrast that with, say, like uh, the Good Vibrations song, where it changes the time signature, and it's kind of a, an abrupt time change, and you can mm-hmm. kind of feel it as you're listening to it, and you're like, oh, what's going on? But Rush, they, they move through time signatures flawlessly. You don't even really notice that they're changing it. So, so that piece there, there's a, a few time signature changes that they go through that you, you don't, don't even notice. You notice it's smooth, or you don't notice because you're enjoying herbs? <laughs> <laughs> it's because it's smooth, and they, and they do it really well. Okay. So, um, the other song that was mentioned on there, The Trees, is one that I really so like. So good. And, and we won't play it, but we could go through the lyrics if you want. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting story about how oaks and maples are looking at each other differently based on how tall they are and how much light they get. Yes. And it's it's like, well, it's all about tree equality. the maples look up and say, oh, the oaks are lofty. You know, they, they grab up all the light and then the oaks look down at the maples and go, how can you be so happy down there in the shade? Isn't that the... That's a Justin Bieber song, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) But then it's interesting. So it's a conversation conversation back and forth about how, how could you be happy with this? Or how, why are you doing this? And I feel oppressed or I I feel left out. Huge with the ends. Oh, absolutely. Oh, for sure. But then what's interesting is how it ends, which Ryan, you know, if you're looking at the lyrics, like the last line of it is kind of sad. (laughs) So it goes through this whole thing. And then it says, so the maples formed a union and demanded equal rights. The oaks are just too greedy. We will make them give us light. Now there's no more oak oppression, for they passed the noble law, and the trees are all kept equal by hatchet, axe, and saw. Hatchet, axe, and saw. <laughs> so good. I like Ryan's version. <laughs> that was poetic. Yeah. No, that's, so, that's deep. Like so that's, that, you don't you don't see that in a lot of like no lyrics, and you, especially when it's like, oh, it's a song about trees, and it's like, no, it's not. So uh, it's about society, wait, it's man. Not? Wait, what? It's about society. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Neil says that he's not really trying to make a metaphor about anything particular. Mm-hmm. Liar. <laughs> but um, and and try not to get too political on the show, but it, it is kind of interesting that 
the more you ask for intervention, sometimes you don't always like the intervention that comes. Right. So, yeah. Um, okay. So moving on. Yeah. The next song you chose. So now we're to permanent way. This sounds familiar. Very familiar. Maybe because I listened to it like 12 times in prep for the <laughs> intro today. It's so good. So I, I felt it was good to, to play this song, knowing what the intro is going to be, um, so you guys can kind of hear what, where it came from. And see how spot on and you my, knew, my lyrics this were. Is, Joel, this my is the song you knew, right? Of this theirs. is the first, the first one that I went, one. I know this, I know this, I know this. Yeah. And then Ryan actually, when Ryan said, hey, can you, he had an idea for the intro, and he wrote up the lyrics and said, can you do this? I was like, Sure. Just got to learn how the song goes first, because even though I knew the song when I heard it, I don't know it until I went back and listened to it. I'm like, there, okay, there it is again. This is a very commercial-friendly song. Yeah. So is this the way their music had changed? Like, yeah. So have they, are they still, like, inaccessible for many people, or is... But yeah, this is kind of a transition, so I, I still kind of classified this when I sent out my spreadsheet as the Masters of Prog Rock. So it's still very Prog Rock-based. There's still a lot of odd time signatures and, uh, and time signature transitions and things like that that they do in the music. So you've mentioned prog rock a few times. Are there any other bands that you would consider to be in the genre? Although there's a ton. So um, that, that people would know. Yeah, that people would yeah. know, please. Back. Yeah. So like <laughs> Pink Floyd is probably one of the, the most accomplished um, prog rock bands. And then Genesis under Peter Gabriel is considered uh, prog rock. Not so much when uh, Phil, Collins. Phil Collins takes over. As adult right? contemporary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it kind of transitions a little bit. Yeah. With yeah. Phil Collins. So. Uh, those are kind of the bigger. Why are you looking at me just because I love Phil Collins? Name. Joel loves Phil Collins <laughs> I do so love much. Phil Collins. I always smugly look at him whenever we mention Phil Collins. <laughs> so, so those are Sam for Phil Collins. Joel, you'll be in my heart. Do. Okay. So, so those are kind of more more famous ones, and then some more contemporary prog rock bands are called Tool. It's probably prog rock, and then Muse. Uh, are they contemporary still? Well, I, okay, more nineties, I guess. Okay. Yeah. So, I so mean, it, Muse is a little bit. It's interesting rock. you bring okay. up Muse. I think Muse would be the example that everyone looks oh, at. Here we go, Kent. <laughs> and there will be a Muse show in the future. There will be a Muse show. They can sell oh, Get a room, YouTube. They get can a Muse sell approved. Can I Bacon be on the Muse approved. show? I uh, love we Muse. We can do a Muse Boom. show if we do a Phil Collins show. Deal. I would. I would sell one hundred percent deal. <laughs> because Phil Collins. I want to bring this up because we talk about. Rush being derivative of Led Zeppelin and then becoming their own sound. Muse was derivative of Radiohead when they first started. That was yeah. all the criticism that was laid against them. And then they became their own thing and I think even transcended Radiohead. Easy. Save for the Radiohead. Okay, okay, I'll save for the Muse show. The Radiohead guys are not going to like you. I think the, oh, and they're very vocal, <laughs> the 12 of them. I, oh. <laughs> I just think the path of these bands is very similar. Prog rock is a tough genre to kind of stand alone in. Yeah. Well, and I mean, maybe not always be loved because they do rock, change styles. Progressive rock is you're trying new things right. and some things stick and some things don't. Some albums don't. Exactly. So the the interesting lyric in uh, Spirit of the Radio is he's talking about, it's all about the radio, right? Music. And there's this, a line in there in the second verse that says, and one likes to believe in the spirit of music, but glittering prizes and endless compromises shatter the illusions of integrity. Once again, that was from memory. That yeah. That's so Rush. Yeah. Right? Like they yeah. never sold out. These guys didn't fit in with like fashion of rock bands or did even they not music sell out style. Though? Because they did give up their more experimental songs from a radio friendly one. Well, because they wanted to. Yeah. They wanted to take it easy. So it's on not selling one. out if you want it. And his, this is what's ironic. This Spirit of Radio is a song. It's anti radio. It's one of their most uh, popular radio hits. Yeah. It's literally making fun of the entire industry and saying, we don't like it and we don't care. And it's a super popular radio song. I like that. Gentlemen. <laughs> 
Without Star Wars, you wouldn't have The Empire Strikes Back. Without Permanent Waves, you would not have the next album, which is Moving Pictures. This is the pinnacle of Rush. The pinnacle of Rush in 1981 is the pinnacle of Rush. I Yes. But let me play you the song that Ryan chose from this album. Okay. Long time so yeah. <laughs> I think this is on the Encino Man soundtrack. I think it really is. Ryan, why YYZ, the song? Because so, it's on Rock Band, Kent. <laughs> so YYZ is how you're supposed to pronounce it. They're it's, Canadian. We're in America. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So Is yeah. it because their music only appeals to the Y chromosome? Is that what it is? Oh, so YYZ is e, actually... Yeah. I get you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's actually the three-letter code for the Toronto airport. And so when Neil was in the Toronto airport waiting for his flight, he heard the Morse code for YYZ um, come across, and he thought, hey, that sounds like a good beat. And so that he put that... So that first little ding, ding, ding at the very beginning of that is the Morse code for YYZ. Wait, so this album, Moving Pictures, I've heard of this one. It seems semi-popular. Yeah, this is their best-selling album of all time. Yeah. Why? What? What's on it? So we got uh, Tom Sawyer. There you go. Red mm-hmm. Barchetta, Limelight, and YYZ. Those are kind of the big. And who doesn't love Tom Sawyer? It's an amazing song with lyrics such as "Catch the witness, catch the wit, catch the spirit, catch the spit." It's about being tough, Joel. I don't want to catch roll with spit. It. Now I've hated on synth and music. But this song uses it so well. I agree. It's pioneering. This is where we uh, strike a good balance of synth, which, by the way, I don't know if we've mentioned, it's Geddy Lee, the bass player and singer, who also is the keyboard player uh, doing all of the synth stuff. Yeah. So he is busy. And apparently in concert, they play just as the album is. And so they have all the instruments or MIDI keys and whatnot. Yeah, and it's very interesting. So what they'll do is they'll go into the studio, and like you mentioned, they're a small orchestra. They're a three-piece outfit that makes this big sound. They don't have a touring band with them? No. 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 Wow. They are just, it's the three of them, and they put this stuff together in the studio. And then it's like a game to them. How can we make this thing that only exists in the studio something that we can play live? And we can play live 200 times a year. Yeah. It's pretty slick. So they have a lot of foot pedals that they play. It's kind of neat to watch them play because, like, both Alex and Giddy will both play foot pedals and bass. And then Giddy's also playing foot pedals, bass. He's singing, and and occasionally he's playing. Uh, the notes on the on the synth. So yeah, he'll like tap his bass guitar with his left. He'll play the synth with his right. He'll hit a pedal and he'll sing. It's bonkers. Well, and the thing is, if you if you don't know who Rush is, you'll probably recognize Witch Hunt Part Three of Fear. No, wait, no, I meant <laughs> Tom Sawyer. Yes, off this album. Tom Sawyer is one of those most recognizable songs by them. Yeah, but I will say one of my other Rush experiences was in the movie I Love You, Man, mm-hmm. uh, 2009. Nine. Nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a character. It's Paul Rudd and... Why Jason can't I remember his name? Siegel. Jason Siegel. Yes. And they and he's looking for a best... Paul Rudd's looking for a, a best man to, to be his friend at his wedding. And he finds Jason Siegel, who's obsessed with Rush. And then he introduces Paul Rudd to Rush. And it also introduces the audience to Rush. And the song Limelight is prominently featured in the movie I Love You, Man, and that was one of the things where I heard that and had a connection to Rush. Like, wow, that was one of the first times I kind of went, wow, people are really, really into this band, like really into this band. Yeah. And so that was one of my experiences. And it plays in on the joke of who their audience is. It does. But this album hit number three in the U.S., multi-platinum U.S. and Canada. Yep. 
there's probably no real decline unless there is, but this is the peak for sure for yeah, Rush. This is the peak. This is the album, and I mentioned it earlier in the show. This is the album where Neil Peart says Rush became Rush. Well, in this this was the culmination of what they had worked up to to that point. Full confession, I was not really enjoying my journey through all 19 studio albums until around this point. In the 80s, they turned a corner, and I went, "Okay, this does not sound as grating to me." Mm-hmm. And my poor wife. Uh, oh, she, she, did, she, did, she did mention she was like she was like I really wasn't liking it for a bit there she, she was in the in the house as I was listening to it but see I'm almost really opposite of you Joel it was the album after this one is where I stopped liking it as much um, and I'm the same way like this early 70s stuff yeah very Led Zeppelin but then the next couple albums are great and then after this is where I start to fall off. So before is we move on, is it bad that my, one of my favorite one albums now. was Power Windows? Is that bad? No, that's or is it still in the good, good era? It's in the middle of the bad, but it's still okay. Yeah. Okay. But before we move on from this, I kind of want to talk about Limelight a little bit. Limelight's kind of uh, Neil Peart's autobiography a little bit because it really talks about dealing with fame and what happens when you become famous. Mm-hmm. And so there's a line in there that says, "I can't pretend a stranger's a long-awaited friend." And that was Neil Peart to a T. He was kind of a very private kind of person. He didn't like it when people, strangers, would come up to him and say, hey, I really love your music. And he's like, and they want to give you a hug. They want to shake your hands. He's like, I just cannot do that. It just feels so weird. Yeah. Yeah. Even though he's one of the best drummers of all yeah. time, and that's thing is he didn't like to do interviews. He didn't like yeah. to talk to the media. He just he's just a private person. And they're very interesting as this combo. These are three guys who they've been together for a long time now. They they're best of friends. They love each other. They're they all the have best of friends. They all have a thousand nicknames for each other, but mainly they call each other uh, Getty Lee's, known as Dirk. Why? Uh, what? Because no, no why, why do nicknames exist? Uh, Alex Lifeson, they call him Lurkst. And they call Neil Peart uh, that's, Pratt. That's weird. They just have it? nicknames for each other, but they have a thousand. Oh, we're, we're starting nicknames next week. Yeah, yeah. we are sprinkles. Sprink- oh. <laughs> but what's interesting too, and this it kind of happens later, but we're kind of talking about it right now. They would. You have Alex Lifeson is extremely outgoing and very funny, a total goofball. Getty Lee is very kind uh, and very nice to people, and you obviously say, recognizable. You say Canadian. He's very Canadian. <laughs> and then, you know, they would go on the tour bus or go on the planes, and then Neil Peart is the guy who would be reading the books, or later in his career he would actually just ride his motorcycle and take the long way between the various stops on his tour just to see the country just he he hated touring he hated the the fame and stuff but he was such a passionate musician that that's where he focused his energy hmm. and then he rode his bike everywhere or read books yeah. you know and the other uh, so read books uh, while riding his bike <laughs> the other well, nickname for neil pert is the professor yeah and um people say that because he gives a clinic every time and every show about how to drum and he also kind of maybe we'll get to it later on but he has this live performance where he does like an eight minute drum solo and he just kind of basically takes you through like the history of drumming almost it seems like in that eight minutes so he's yeah. kind of known as the professor for for his intellect for reading and then also because he's such a clinician on the drums so we had talked about our experiences and i just want to get in my experience with rush it begins with this album actually this is what exposed me to the musical complexities that are possible. My dad actually sat me down as a young boy and said, hey, you've started listening to music. You're kind of in, I was in like band. I played the clarinet, right? Well, I was getting interested in music though and the different parts of it. He sat me down and we, he turned on Tom Sawyer and we listened to it. And he said, okay, this time I just want you to listen to the song. Starts it over. Says, this time I want you to listen to the guitar. Starts it over. This time I want you to listen to the drums and what they're doing. I want you to listen to this. So he actually pointed out the various pieces of this. And, and it really showed me, even as a young age, these are three guys who do everything they need to to hold up this thing equally. I love that that was the talk 
Yeah, from yeah. a Rush fan. <laughs> yeah, it's like son. Yeah. So Come in your son. Yeah, you're listen, ready. No son, listen. The world is. The world is. Love and life are deep. Maybe as his eyes are wide. It doesn't make sense, son. But you need to listen to that, <laughs> Joel. I will slap you. Now you understand <laughs> so, the birds and the bees. <laughs> so, Joel, you keep talking about all these lyrics, but you're missing the most important one. His mind is not for rent to any god or government. Well, I, I intentionally <laughs> skimmed over the ones parts that made rent. sense. Yeah. Because like, I, I, I didn't know the lyrics to Tom Sawyer until I went through and read them, and I was like, catch the spit. What? Real quick shout out before we move on this one. The first four tracks, we've talked about three of them. I'll just say Red Barchetta is the second track on the album, and it is an amazing song. It actually relaxes me to sleep when Save I hear it, it in a good way. I, I had that at Olive Garden the other day. It was yeah, really exactly. Good. <laughs> Yum. Uh, but yeah, it's this album is just, it so, to me is, I have not heard a song in my life more than I've heard Tom Sawyer. So much like Rush, can we just uh, speed through the next couple albums? Please do. Sure. <laughs> no, just kidding, Ryan. So you direct us. After their high success, they started started to transition again and this is what i call their prog new wave because they uh there's was a the point, 80s there's a point where they say that they've been influenced by police and they've been listening to a lot of police and so i think because of that they start the band going, not like radio yeah, yeah like the yeah. police scanners right and this like is that, where yeah. really it starts police to the band this is where even police the fans King. start to split and so uh, i'm just gonna go have my mid-show tinkle while you guys talk oh, about God. this oh stop it so the next one is signals this is where the synthesizer becomes a bigger player and they start using the synthesizer more for like kind of the melody and less on the guitar. And so Alex, looking back on this period, he was very unhappy during this period of time. And there's some, there's still some really good guitar riffs and things that they, they work through. But these next four albums, maybe five, are, are were kind of really synth heavy and they kind of lost a lot of uh, kind of their hard rock core from... And these four albums. So let's play a few clips. This first one is from Signals, right? Signals. Yeah. My least favorite Rush album. It's Subdivisions. This totally sounds like it was in a trading video in the 80s. It does. You're right. This is a super popular song. I think it really speaks to a lot of people's you know, high yeah. school experience. Uh, it's the only good song on the album in my So it, it talks about in the high school halls and the shopping malls, um, conform or be cast out. It kind of talks about peer pressure and that kind of stuff. But it speaks happens. to their audience. Yeah. And, and I mean, and there's uh, when you watch that documentary Beyond the Wide Stage, there's a lot of guys that talk about how this song in particular spoke to them when they were going through high school and feeling some of this stuff, kind of being felt like they were an outcast by society. So Okay. And so the next album after that is... Grace Under Pressure, my least favorite album. And the song we'll be playing is called Distant Early Warning. Yeah, this one is probably... I thought for sure you are going to pick up Body Electric because it talked about robots. Well, I, I wanted to, but I thought maybe it wasn't quite as approachable as this song. And this song is what again? Distant Early Warning. Sounds very 80s. Yeah, it's very police. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can hear that. And like I said, they, they at this time, they were being influenced by the police, and so... Um, but this song it is another kind of commentary on social things. So it talks about you no know, swimming in the heavy water, no singing in the acid rain, uh, red alert. So it's kind of more about environmental impacts of whatever. So they get kind of... <laughs> so the message rang true, is that what you're saying? <laughs> it spoke to me. Environmental, whatever. <laughs> we got the trees, we're fine. There is a song on this album. It's called uh, Red Sector A, which kind of deals with where Getty Lee's parents came from. This is actually kind of an interesting story. His parents were um, Holocaust survivors, yeah. but they were actually like they were at Auschwitz. 
they were like right in the thick of everything. Mm-hmm. They actually met in concentration camps and then in the course of what was going on, were split up. And so after they were sort of like, you know, liberated, uh, they actually sought each other out to find each other to get married. Wow. Um, and so they went to Canada for a new life. And then, right? yeah, they yeah. ended up in Canada because they, they just had to get away. They were Polish, kind of an interesting story. And then uh, so Red Sector A does talk a little bit about, you know, the experiences that they had. Wow. Another interesting thing is Alec Lifeson's parents came from Yugoslavia. They were refugees mm. from Yugoslavia. So Alex and Getty kind of had this bond early on that they both came from these refugee families and they kind of had a lot of pressure to to do certain things. And Getty kind of talked about how his mom didn't really understand what he did for a living. He's like, he's like, how can you play the guitar for a living? And and it wasn't until she saw him on TV that she finally understood it. Oh, he's a performer. (laughs) 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 All right. So the album that follows that is power windows. windows. I don't know why. I don't know why this one, but this one really stood out to me. It's kind of because I I say this once again, with all the love in my heart, a lot of these just kind of turned into background noise with whatever I was doing. Nothing mm-hmm. like jumped out and hit me. And then Power Windows, I was like, I'm liking this one. And kind of just stopped what I was doing and paid more attention to it. And this okay. is fall of 1985 when it comes out. And the song we have to play is Manhattan Project. Imagine a time when it all so you're liking this stuff right here, Joel. Well, okay, I have, a, I have a huge love for like synth pop kind of stuff. Yeah. And dream pop. And this definitely had that kind of feel to it. That more ethereal kind of dreamlike music to it. And I don't know why, but this album in, uh, in particular, I, I liked The Big Money as it came out. That, that first song that came out, yep. I was like, it caught my attention. And so then this one kind of played through and I actually did like, this one stood out to me and I was like, crap, am I liking like the bad stuff? Like I was so no, worried. Not necessarily because it reminds you of 80s films, right? Like that it belongs on a soundtrack. Yeah. I, and it was funny because to my wife. She thought I was angry or something when I was first listening to those 70s albums because I was just listening to these. Because uh, it's being pummeled. Very much. I was, yeah. just, I was listening to it loud. I was in like kind of the room just like working during the day. And then this one came on and she was like, oh, this isn't too bad. And I'm like, yeah, I like this one. Hi, honey. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. This I'm one, feeling better now. So the Manhattan Project is obviously about the billing of the atomic bomb. And <laughs> of course it, it is. With a beautiful song like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course, Rush will change it. Yeah. To the building of and the it, And it bomb. goes all the way up and it talks about the pilot of the Nola Gay flying out of the shockwave on that August day. It mm-hmm. talks, talks about the dropping of the bomb and the Big Bang took and shook the world. And then after that is Hold Your Fire. Next album. So the song is Time Stand Still. This also has my tormented soul crush, yeah. Amy Mann. Yeah. I, I love Which I reference with... <laughs> And this so, is a bright spot in a dark period. I love this. Song. So I put this song on there just because she's on there singing the the, the, the music video track. is Rush, one of the weirdest Rush. I've seen. Yep, uh, like yeah. so poorly filmed. But Amy Mann is in the song, and so it makes it amazing. Mm-hmm. But it's it's eighties that I can totally tolerate. Like like you said, Zach, mm-hmm. it's a bright spot. Yeah, this this song's great. But this is still I call it their Duran Duran phase. Which isn't a bad thing, but but not when from your producing a Bond song Duran Duran does you get after Duran Duran. A View to a Kill, one of yeah. their best. Um, that you're bashing on them. Yeah, uh-huh. they, they're a runner-up. How in dare our you bash 80s, on Duran Duran? Bracket. But is Duran Duran a Led Zeppelin spinoff? No. Again, it's the thing where they change so much that 
you're just bound to lose some fans. Now, this is a hardcore fan base, so there were people who are just ready to go on this journey with them. Okay, so speaking of this, did they lose fans at this time? Did they pick up new fans? Did yeah. it make yeah. up for it? Were people it? disappointed with them changing their genre? No, I don't think so. The hardest of the hardcore now. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's definitely some that, that kind of maybe came in along permanent waves and, uh, and Thomas Sawyer that probably dropped off after this, or there were some that were back from when they sounded more like Led Zeppelin that sure. probably dropped him. You know, some other time, but, but that's kind happens. of kind of the thing is they were never really satisfied with just being one thing. They were always yeah. looking to to do something different and progress musically, and so, and that never stopped. They always just did it throughout their whole forty year career. They definitely lost me in this period, except for the fact that I still wasn't alive yet. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, Zach, you hadn't had the talk yet. Next up, wow. nineteen eighty nine, we have Presto. One of the weirdest album covers I want to point out. Yeah, just a bunch yeah. of rabbits. On a hill. Not that their album covers were ever really normal. No. They're, they're coming out of a top hat, so Presto's magic. I know, but it's just one of the things where I kind of went, this seems very gimmicky. This is super chill. Whoa, take it easy. What just happened? Yeah. Oh Presto! my gosh, it's almost like they oh, <laughs> I now. They remember they're a rock band for a yeah. second. Uh, What's this track? Yeah. This is called Show, Don't Tell. And so this is a kind of a return to form. So Alex, after complaining to Getty incessantly about the heavy use of synthesizers. Because Getty was all about it, right? Yeah, Getty, he liked the easiness of the synthesizer and how much he could get out of it, right? It's just kind of an easy tool for him to Such use. Such a bass player. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get to true. play the melody now. Because yeah. low maintenance, whatever's cool. So this is a, more of a, a transition back to their hard rock roots right here. And this is the kind of the start of that. And so there's this one has a mix of hard rock and kind of synth pop, yeah. uh, synth rock, I guess. I definitely um, like so. two tracks on this one. I like that one. I also like the title track, Presto. But this is actually considered by a lot of fans to be one of their worst still. But I actually like this one much more than most yeah, people Yeah, so do. this is like the fifth album in that series where it's more synth heavy. But it is, as you with this first song, you can see that they're starting to transition back to that hard rock. That moves us into 1991's Roll the Bones. 90s. Now we're in the 90s, boys, and I'm officially alive at this point. I'm oh, one th- year old! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, the song is Dreamline. Okay, okay. So it does have the transitional, like, you know how the early, not late 80s, early 90s, kind of had the same sort of sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was just about to be grunge, but it wasn't quite there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. This this has that feeling for me. Yeah. And you can kind of see that they kind of definitely borrowed a lot from other uh, genres that were kind of popular at the time. And so it's kind of interesting to watch them move as music moves, right? So, you know, not that in 91 I was in junior high, but I remember being in junior high and seeing some kid wear an oversized Rush t-shirt. It was a concert t-shirt, and it was Rush Roll the Bones. I remember it like... Yeah. And it was weird because I never knew who Rush was. And I thought, Rush? Seems like a copycat of Bush. <laughs> oh, like, they're totally nice. still in the name Bush. Slap oh, that's his funny. Exactly. <laughs> slap me. Slap him. Over here. So, here. I'll be honest. At the time, when I was a kid, I actually thought the same thing before I had discovered Rush. I was like, Bush? Bush? <laughs> Do you think Bush made a conscious effort to, like... Be semi-similar. Probably did because Bush is a terrible name for a band. (laughs) It is. My experience in high school. So when I was in high school, I didn't really know the term hipster, but I I didn't want to be trendy. Yeah. So 
I had all the guys in, in high school. They were, they, were, they were the trendy people. I didn't want to be that. So I started listening to classic rock. That was my way to not be trendy was to listen to stuff that was popular decades ago. Right? So your way to not, not be trendy was to be trendy, but 10 years before that. <laughs> so be old time trendy. Yeah, old time yeah, trendy. Okay. Yeah. So well, it's funny. I didn't quite get how to do it, I guess. It's funny you say that because if I knew who Rush was back in high school, they would have been my favorite band up until now because I've always wanted to be that hipster. Yeah. And this seems like the perfect my girlfriend and my favorite that. band are in Canada. Pull <laughs> <laughs> them. They're in Canada. You, you guys haven't seen them yet. It's fine. But yeah, they exist. Every time somebody asked me who my favorite band was and I tell them Rush, then I could go one, two, three. You mean Bush? No, Rush. And I get so mad. Okay, so who introduced you to Rush? Um, so I, I think I heard it on a classic rock station. I heard Tom Sawyer. So it was just you. And then I found out that my brother had Of Chronicles. course it was a brother. Yeah, yeah my, my older brother is like nine years older than me. He had... He had the Chronicles uh, CD, which is a, their greatest hits from like up until Presto. Mm-hmm. I borrowed that from him and I listened to it and I absolutely loved it. And so then after that, I was like, okay, I'm going to start just buying all the albums. And so that was my goal was to collect all the Rush albums I could. And so I went through and got all their albums in order and listened to them. So. See, that's cool. Like I would break into my older brother's room and he had Erasure CDs and tapes <laughs> and rebellious so, <laughs> <laughs> rebellious the razor I'd be listening to Imagination that, that my sister's Ship that, of Fools yeah. yeah that's a good influence right yeah. there I actually my notes on Roll the Bones as an album are it's just so aggressively 80s even though it came out in 91, yeah, it's, it to me, it's aggressively, aggressively 80s. I mean, it's 91 is still a transition. Yeah, it's I mean, basically... You're, you're yeah. still the 80s in 91. Well, isn't it Canada's like a few years off of what the... <laughs> uh, actually, 12. Rate. It's 12 yeah. years off. <laughs> Robin Sparkles. Next up, we've got Counterparts in 1993, which honestly, some people are call, call this album even grungy. Uh, it's interesting because... Grungy? Yeah, the producer... I did not get grunge from this. Well, the producer on this one basically said, no, you don't use effects. No, you don't use synth. You pick up your guitar. You play your guitar. You're a rock band. Yeah. Be a rock band. Yeah. So no, no uh, pedals, no synth pedals on, on this album. So the song is Leave That Thing Alone. This is an instrumental that I love. It was instrumental. So there's that, that beat, that bass line right there. It was really nice. Yeah, the, the funk beat right there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, it's definitely heavy feature of Getty Lee on the bass for sure. And there, the, the probably the song that's the most grunge on that is a song called "Stick It Out," and that that's got some really heavy grunge influence on that song. It feels like it hasn't quite caught up to the '90s yet, though. Yeah, I mean, I mean that song. But it's just Rush. Rush has never really yeah. belonged anywhere. And, so, and that's kind of re, a return back to instrumental songs. Mm-hmm. Like every album used to have an instrumental song, and I don't think that those four, um, from Signals down to Presto, so I guess five had a had a um an instrumental only song and that that one there is the instrumental only on that album. and it's one of your personal favorites on the album yeah i like that one yeah. okay I, I mean i like a lot of the songs on that album so yeah that's this is where it gets back and i especially when i went through my re-listen i totally tune out for like four albums and uh counterparts was the first one that definitely got me back listening back paying attention back focusing on on rush the way that the earlier albums did so after that is Test for Echo. And this is the first tour that I attended. So they, they toured from 96 to 97. And I went in 97, May of 97. It's my first Rush show that I went to. All right. And the song is Driven. Here we go. This is 90s. Is this Tool? I was going to say, this is very nice. Are we sober? Yeah. 
that that song is my my favorite on the album, particularly because of that that bass solo that he does. This is critically considered their worst. Really? I would say. And it's a fine album. It, it, it would, it's interesting. I like it better than a lot of the previous ones, but overall, and especially if you factor in sort of the time and all of that, um, considered their worst album. Is it because it's some. the least proggy? Maybe. It almost seems like they're being faulted for what they were doing and mm-hmm. being critically reviled for anyway. Yeah, well, it seems maybe. like yeah. they're growing and changing and trying new things and people are faulting them for it, even though they may like it later on. Yeah. You yes. know what I mean? Yeah. You know how at the Oscars, there's the Lifetime Achievement Award for like mm-hmm. Gary Oldman and stuff like that? I think it was that, but in reverse. Has it's he like Lifetime Achievement Award? <laughs> no, but it feels that he way He got a sometimes. Best Actor eventually. But it's like, you know, I, I don't like you and I've never liked you, so I'm not going to like you now. Yeah. And that was what I think, uh, uh, probably a culmination of it by this point. It's like, dude, we're tired of you. I don't know about that. And they were starting to space their albums out more. Like, this mm-hmm. is years yeah. and years apart, yeah. right? So, like, they were getting older, too. Well, sure. Early on, they were doing, like, so, like, they did the, the two albums in one year. Then they do do one every every year. And then they went to every two years. And now they're, like, after this point, I think it's, like, every five. Yeah, this is so, three years. Yeah, right? was it, wasn't it, it was Test for Echo, though. Wasn't that their last one before Neil Peart? Yeah. Yeah. So starting a medical thing. Well, and it's interesting. Speaking of Neil Peart, before we go to the sad part, um, he actually, and they call him the professor, he's he's not only teaching people, putting on his clinic, but he's also constantly learning. He actually relearned how to drum for this album. Uh, yeah. he, he was getting... He's so precise and he's almost mechanical. He uh, learned more fluidity right with the way that he played instead of being so rigid to time. He sort of adapted the way he played, which is, it's interesting. It's, they said, we don't really notice it in hearing you. You still sound like Neil Peart. But when they played with him, they noticed a difference. Is it Even, Peart or Pert? I it's Peart, Peart it as in Peart. pull like your ear. Peart. Peart. Sorry, I keep saying it wrong. Everyone so, does. So he actually said when he played the earlier songs of Rush, he'd have to kind of dumb it down for himself because he advanced so much as a drummer. And the songs became so much more complex, he'd have yeah. to go more simple. Well, he was used to playing, he was playing with click tracks. Yeah. Again, he was precision and he wanted to loosen up a bit. But then moving into this, this is one of the biggest stretches between albums. So it's from 1996 to 2002 because there was some pretty intense tragedy well, uh, in the band. Neil Peart's uh, daughter passed away in a car accident. His wife passed away from cancer and he, he said, consider me retired. Mm-hmm. He needed yeah. to take some time. And then he ended up taking, I think it was a motorcycle trip. Yeah. Uh, so fifty five thousand miles. Fifty five thousand. So he drove all across North America, up and down. Yeah, just trying for, to for about five. Years. Think of it like Forrest Gump running. Yeah. yeah. So for about five years, he just kind of disappeared, and then um, he just kind of and he he wrote a book about it called Ghost Rider, and there's a song on the next album called Ghost Rider that that talk about his uh, experience about riding this um, motorcycle across the country and just kind of trying to be like this nomad and doing his very best not to be recognized by anybody so it's really telling of the love that these bandmates had for each other cuz you have Getty and Alex and what for five nearly six years they weren't making music they, they weren't going on they tour they mourn yes and they they'd reach out to him when they could yeah. or when he wanted to and they just said, okay, if you're retired, then we're retired. We're not going to get some backup drummer to take yeah. over and during so the concert. I think in this period, Alex and Getty both released a solo album. Uh, Getty's is called My Favorite Headache, and Alex's is called Victor. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I unfortunately don't have those albums, but... Um, I think we'll be okay. Yeah, I think <laughs> Getty's is better than, oh, is it okay? than Alex's, yeah. So. so after this, there's a five-year break. 
Neil says, no, I, I'm in again. I think I can do this again. And so they, they start to get together and they start to play. And he has to relearn a lot of what he's done, which he already had just barely relearned how to play again. Hmm. So he has to get up the courage to, to continue playing after the, all of this tragedy. And eventually they end up back in the studio releasing 2002's Vapor Trails. All right. And the song is One Little Victory. Listen to that drum. That's yeah. a lot of double bass drum. He's going back with the vengeance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this is like full return to form right here. It's interesting, though, uh, and there's, uh, uh, and I won't get into it because it's super nerdy, but I'll just basically say. Oh, because this show hasn't right. been? <laughs> the, it's even, there, oh, there's a next level that I won't even bring here. But the production level of a lot of the albums, but specifically this one, is actually like really poor. It, they were made poorly and overly compressed and actually very difficult to listen to. So much so oh. that this album was actually remixed and re-released in 2013. I was going to say, oh, I, so listened, I listened to the remastered version. It's much better. Yeah, no. and you guys, you guys didn't get Should to I experience listen to the, the other one, the bad version. Good version? luck finding it. It's terrible. <laughs> it's like because it's it's really ag- aggressively compressed, and the sound is just unpleasant to listen to. Mm-hmm. Uh, which luckily they have fixed, and the version you'd find on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever. Good to know is is better. But during this time period, it is, uh, and even after this, uh, their, their next couple albums, I actually suffer from some of the same things. They're not the best produced albums, but this this one, uh, the remix version, which came out in 2013, definitely has some some really cool songs on it. I think. It's interesting, though, because you also have on this, Neil is writing from this place of pain. He's writing from what he's experienced in his life. But for me, there's a little bit of a disconnect because then it turn, you turn around and it's Getty Lee singing it. Yes. And it would be, that's, that's always a little bit of a disconnect when it comes to Rush. Did, is it's, it's not the words coming from Getty. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask, I was going to, do the other two, did they ever sing the other, like, does Neil Peart ever sing on an album or I just blanked on his name? Life, Alex, Alex he sang backup, right? Uh, he, yeah. he kind of, does a little bit, but I think when he does sing, I think it's like heavily mixed too. Because I don't, I don't yeah, know that, like what the sing talking is. kind of thing. Okay, but it's all good, as yep. you yeah. guys say. And it's like if Dirt you head. can listen to Way some to go, songs, you. you can listen to some songs where there's some harmony, and it's just Getty Lee singing the harmony. So they and then live, it's yeah. Alex Lifeson singing yeah. it. So okay, yeah, it's mostly just all singing from Getty Lee. I almost wish that you know it, it was. Neil expressing somehow creatively that. And it, it does come through in his drumming, but not so much in the singing. So while seeing Russian concert, you know how you generally focus on the lead singer, maybe playing the lead guitar, and that's kind of who that's who you watch, unless you have a favorite in a particular band. Can't still get at the cute girl two rows up. Yeah, that's so that's true. true. It's so not true. at this concert. <laughs> and uh, do you think people mostly look at Neil Peart? Unless maybe Getty's their favorite or Alex their favorite. Do you think people actually for the first time ever focus on the drummer and his playing. That's an interesting question. Um, follow up to that is, Hey, rush nerd. Who do you watch? I watch all three. I mean, okay. it, I mean, there's different parts. I'm like, who's like, your you know which who's part your to favorite? focus on who? So that part, like when we were listening to driven, when we had that, when I went to that show and he gets out there at center stage and he plays that guitar solo when he does it live, he does it a little bit longer, right, than it is on the, on the studio album. A 70s so. band going really long on a guitar Crazy. solo? Crazy. <laughs> yeah, but it's a bass solo, so it's it's kind of unusual. And then A bass guitar. And then what Neil has his own song. It takes different names over the years, but he's actually been nominated for a Grammy for that live performance that he did in, in Rio. And it's an eight-minute drum solo, like I said earlier. Um, where he kind of takes you through the history of dr- drumming, and he and he has a bunch of like sound clips with horns and things that he that he actually triggers with his with his drumming. So it, yeah. so at that point you're you're all focused on 
Neil. Yeah, and the other guys, the other guys bounce, drink some Metamucil while he plays. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, it's great. I mean, I think all three musicians are very accomplished. Uh, Alex appears like the hot 100 for guitarist, but he's way low. But I, th- I think he's kind of underrated as a guitarist. But. Well, because he wasn't, it wasn't like foundation from the drums, foundation from the bass, lead guitar goes and shows off. We're talking, we're equal parts of each three. Yeah. And so he didn't really get the opportunity to shine so much because you had such forward and aggressive bass and you had mm-hmm. so many cymbals being hit all at the same time. We haven't really <laughs> talked about Neil Peart's drum set is encircling him it is enormous it is all of these all these different drums and all these different cymbal sounds are constantly spinning bar stools he just goes around yeah and ryan's talking about this this drum solo that he does in different movements of this this 10 minute song that he makes his drum sets literally spins around him he stands up it spins he's at the electronic part of his set then he's at the bells then he's it is a sight to behold. Definitely watch it. Uh, yeah. There's many videos. We are now moving though into my first door that I got to see, which is 2007 Snakes and Arrows. 17 year old Zach gets to go to uh, get to his first rush show with your dad. No, just me. What? Just wow. me. And some, you know, buddy. After the whole thing with your dad, like, I know, right? Tom Sawyer didn't even take you to a concert. It was so strange. Wow. Well, my friend was like, "Hey, I have tickets. Want to go?" And I was like, "Oh yeah." I listened to one album at that point. I actually wasn't versed on Rush, and so I. I go to this concert. I had heard one album. I like four songs. I was like, whoa, they they don't, we haven't really talked. They don't have an opening act anymore. Like by this oh, point, really? well, they are, no one cares they have such a catalog. They are yeah. seriously, it's three, how long do they play? Three hours. Three hours, <gasps> three hours what a with great show. Wait, just the they only day. play four songs? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, exactly. So I didn't, I, this is actually, this is the tour that exposed me to the rest of their catalog. So there was this new album coming out in their tour, but then I got to hear a bunch of stuff that I hadn't. And I was like a super fan after that. All right. So the song Ryan chose was Malignant Narcissism. Great choice. It's a fun story behind this one. Does Flea play bass on this one? No, Yeti. I mean, can I, you it's can kind of hear it. Chili Peppers, definitely there. Oh, I dig that. Would you like to know why? Oh, no. Go for You're it. You're going to tell right. me anyways. First of all, Flea, you mentioned Flea, a uh, very popular slap bass player. Yes. He plays it in a different style. Getty Lee plays in what's called finger style, which is just means he has really, really strong fingers. We'll just leave it at that. Uh, but he was goofing around one time in the studio, and he always had different instruments and different things that he would noodle around with while he was um, recording his vocals. He'd have to sing a little bit and then rest. He's old by this point. Well, one day he had a fretless bass. So you've seen bass guitars. They have little metal lines, yes, um, and that helps them play more cleanly and in tune. Well, he was playing with a fretless bass, so it's just kind of smooth, looking more like a cello or something like that. And he's playing some some grooves, and the sound engineer is actually recording what he's doing through his vocal mic. And he's oh. like, hey, man, that was actually really cool. You should lay some of that down, and you should do an instrumental on it. Well, it, considering it... Is that a record producer speak? Totally. It was okay. really Absolutely. cool. <laughs> yeah, I've hey, seen man, that. lay that hip track down. Slap into bass. Hey, I've seen, Slap into bass. I've seen that thing you do. That's how it happens. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was a bit of a challenge to play on this uh, fretless bass. And so uh, Neil Peart said, well, okay, you're playing sort of a, with a limit. I'll play with the limit here. I'm going to record some drums that are on a much smaller drum set. It's just like a five-piece drum set, really small, like what most normal people use. And so they put together this drum and bass song, and we're like, man, this is really cool. We like it. They record it, and then they're like, oh, wait, Alex Lifeson's out of town. Hey, buddy, here's the music. Just fill in what you need to do. 
And they, but by this point, they can do that. They can pull that off. The bass player and the drummer wrote a song, and then we're like, eh, guitar player, fill in. And thus became their second or third instrumental on this album. Yeah, there's three of them, I think, on this album. Do you guys, I was going to say, do you prefer the instrumentals to the ones with lyrics, or do you prefer the lyrics ones? I can't pick. I mean, there's a, a lot of uh, poetic songs that Neil writes, and Getty kind of talks about how there's a, a mouthful of words to say because he, he's so wordy in his lyrics. Some of the songs are kind of strange, um, but some of them are very poetic, and I really like them. I do really like the um, instrumentals. I always listen to an instrumental if I can. Nice. Especially a Russian instrumental. I prefer the instrumentals myself. And then that that moves us actually into the last studio album, which is 2012's Clockwork Angels. Just before this, uh, the t-shirt I'm wearing, you can't see, listener, they did a a tour called Time Machine. That was uh, another one that I got to attend, and obviously Ryan did as well. And they did something really fun. For the first time, they actually played moving pictures in its entirety. And that's how they like... Uh, wait, advertised on, it. On, wait, wait. On the tour for their newest album, well, it was playing it was before, the entire like an in oh, between. Oh, okay, yeah. Okay. So in twenty, uh, this started in twenty ten. They played all of Moving Pictures. They they opened the second act playing all of the songs in order. I'm sure fans were stoked. It was great. So yeah. this is the one, uh, Joel. Actually, to a comment you made earlier, this is the one where uh, I was like, oh my gosh, they're playing all of Moving Pictures. Hey, Dad. We're going to this concert. Oh, you're yeah, so Wait, finally. Yeah, finally. So uh, now that I knew more about him. him, he still didn't take you. Oh, I took him. Yeah, uh, it was it was like son. a happy birthday, happy Father's Day, whatever. We went and it was just a really cool experience for me. I got to, to sit there at the opening of the second act as they play through all of these songs that I love that my dad shared with me. Um, I got to uh, to listen to him and. We were just by then the air had been filled with um, substance, and it was sure. just uh, it was a good old time. <laughs> so man. it's like I, I loved it. That so, substance yeah. they talked about on Passage to Bangkok. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like you had the talk, but in public this yeah, time. D- yeah, definitely. Okay, definitely. It's interesting when my first tour was the first tour that they played twenty one twelve in its entirety. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So, uh, then you guys are so you cute. Too. On this, you too. <laughs> on this tour that I saw the um, Time Machine, they had two songs from their forthcoming album at the time, uh, which then they put on the twenty twelve album Clockwork Angels. Uh, speaking of concerts and tours, so apparently Geddy Lee he just used like his own house amp. And so, and fun fact, in most concerts, when you see bands and they have a ton of amps behind them, they don't really use them. They're just there for show. Mm, and yeah. so what he would do is kind of make fun of the industry. And he wouldn't bring out fake amps. He'd bring out other things because he didn't want the concert to just be empty. And so he'd bring out first like washing machines or fridges. With t-shirts yep. spinning around With the spinning. whole time. And then rotisserie chicken cookers. Yep. And, and you would... How s- high was no, he? No, no. Because it was a joke. He's like, hey, there needs to be something behind me. Might as well be making some chicken. Yeah. It was a comment <laughs> on arena rock indulgence. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> it was funny. awesome. So when, if you watch live videos and one why there's it's washing like machines they're back the there. dad That's jokers why. basically yeah and pretty it, much it's also funny because you'll get a guy that comes out and he'll base the chicken as it's cooking <laughs> yep yep <laughs> he's their yeah. hype man and Do they give it to the, the audience at the end it's no. does the concert so smell like chicken or is it just herbs oh that would be the best yeah. just herbs i love it what do we have they from this give album? Them to costco so from the final album the song is headlong flight So, Joel, much like you, I mean, I did finish a couple hours after you. 
but I listened to Clockwork Angels. Uh, actually, I'm on my way back here to record. You did all 19 too? Yeah, I did. Hey! Yeah. You're my inspiration. Aww. And, uh, That's Chicago. Different, different show. <laughs> <laughs> and this album, like, I got through the last couple and I was like, those were fine. I could, I could see what they're trying to do, be more modern, and that sounds fine. This last album rocks. Like, yeah. I was loving it. Huh. Yeah. And so I just think this is like a great note to go out on. Probably really bittersweet for a lot of fans, considering mm -hmm. it's 2012. Well, yeah. and I heard, and this is something I heard kind of just watching interviews and stuff like that, that one of those guys was gushing to Getty Lee just about their their final tour, which is where they kind of got this farewell tour and like played essentially a, a, a greatest of all their albums, like from the, from the earliest or from the newest ones back to the earliest ones. And that people got to see this kind of last hurrah, which I thought... Mm -hmm. If you're going to go out as a band, that's a fantastic way to do it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, they did. Uh, so they did a tour for Clockwork Angels in 2012. And then in 2015, they were like, you know what? Uh, Alex Lifeson has some really aggressive arthritis and actually needs injections. And Neil Peart said, I will not. I, I can't drum like Neil Peart forever. And I'm not going to be anything less than myself. People expect me to be what I am. And I can't do this forever. And so they really went into this 2015 uh, R40 tour. R40 was the concert R40, tour. meaning yeah. 40 years saying this is this is the last one. And so they they structured it in an awesome way where they you kind of mentioned Joel, they started with their most current music and they actually worked backwards in time chronologically. Mm -hmm. And as they did that, Kent, you mentioned they had stuff on stage uh, and and washing machines and things like that. They slowly started to pull things away on stage until at the very last song they were in a high school gym. Oh, cool! On stage, very cool. Playing just with small drum set and just little, no no effects and pedals and anything like that. Just really broken down. Really cool tribute to their entire career. Yeah, mm. it was great. So you guys both went to that concert. Yeah, so I was really glad that I went to that R forty uh, tour. So. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people are kicking when themselves was, for that maybe was their not last going. Tour, what, what year was that? 2015. 2015. 2015 was their so, last tour. So kind of a fun fact, when I was, we went with some, some buddies to that tour, and we were at this restaurant, and I was sitting there with my acquaintances. I, I don't know if they're, they're good friends, um, but I kind of met them and said, Marley was sick of going with me to concerts. <laughs> Your wife. And my wife, Marley. And so she was... Hey, Marley. So oh, she's here. <laughs> when she, uh, Marley, I'm disappointed in the lack of snarky comments on this I'm show. Sorry, you're all going long. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. We're all going long. So we bored her. But anyway, I'm at the restaurant, and who walks in but Joel and Kent. And I walked up to what? them and mm -hmm. said, hey, are you guys going to the Rush concert? And Joel looks at me like, oh, are you some kind of freak or something? What? But Wait. no, you guys were going to go see Ant-Man, I think. was the <laughs> <laughs> Wait, we saw, because it came out 2015, we yeah. saw Ant-Man instead yeah. of seeing Rush's final concert. Yeah. Good Granted, job, guys. we didn't even know who they were, really. But wow. Yeah, we were like, Bush? We yeah. Bush? <laughs> yeah. Live? Wait, and you thought we were cool enough to go to a Rush show? Cool, well, cool enough. Well, you know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a I just couldn't figure out what else would bring you guys to West Valley of all places. But yeah. yeah. A Wiener Schnitzel, actually, and yeah. Ant-Man. Yeah. And I, I don't think it was a Wiener Schnitzel that we were at. I can't remember the restaurant. Yeah. But, oh, that was funny. But it was Smash like... Smashburger. It had to be Smashburger. You guys must have been doing a screening at the, the Valley Fair Mall yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah. That would make sense. Wow. That's a funny little connection there. Huh. That is crazy. Um, also, one thing... So we've talked about like their discography. So these guys were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2013 after... 15 years of being in contention. They right? were initially eligible in 1998. Yeah. And they were passed up and passed up. Madonna got in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame before they did. So when they actually were inducted, I guess they didn't really care. 
No, they definitely didn't. And it's funny, too, uh, and very, very obnoxious. So they're finally inducted, and the, they played a cool sort of tribute with Foo Fighters. Uh, Foo Fighters played 2112, and it was, it was awesome. Then Neil Peart goes up and gives a thank you speech. Getty Lee goes up and gives a thank you speech. And then Alex Lifeson, who I said earlier is a goofball, steps up and for three solid minutes at least just goes, blah, 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 blah. Blah, 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 blah. For his speech? For his speech. Yeah. Once again, think about the the washers. Think about all of these things. They did not care about any of this Were people stuff. annoyed or did they like it? Uh, people got it and then it was annoying and then it was went long enough that it kind of came back around. Yeah. <laughs> but they, they got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. People were laughing. They're like, this doesn't matter to them. They were passed up for so long. But you know what? Just let them have their fun. Yeah, Neil and Getty kind of had some nice platitudes to oh, say. Oh, for sure. Yeah. They, it was very nice. What are your final comments? Also, I would like to know your favorite songs. We've talked a lot about albums, but yeah, maybe... Real quick. We got to go real quick, but your top five. Your favorite five. songs. I've actually got my list right here. Coming in at number five, Red Barchetta from Moving Pictures. Delicious. Number four, Free Will from Permanent Waves. Oh, number three, Tom Sawyer from Moving Pictures. Catch the spit. Number two, Livia Strangiato from Hemispheres. And uh, number one is YYZ from Moving Pictures. Wow. Uh, my top three favorite albums are number one, Moving Pictures, and then probably 2112 and Hemispheres after that. I would definitely say, uh, so YYZ, YYZ, Limelight, Red Barchetta. I like Tom Moving Sawyer, pictures. but I think it's um, too, too, trendy. too overplayed. Yeah. Too um, trendy for Rush. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So Spirit of the Radio for sure. Farewell to Kings, Closer to the Heart. I probably already hit five. Yeah. So you like the band. Is that yeah, what you're saying? I do. Yeah. Okay. Although you have mentioned, I think I'm going bald is your least favorite. Yeah. Song. I think I'm going bald is my least favorite song. It's really bad. And then, like, Beach Boys, she's going bald. It's just bald. I songs was wondering what song that was. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I would like to know your, your closing statements from both of you guys. Because you're here to convert, and I'm not mm -hmm. sure this show did it. <laughs> so well, first of all, nobody's still listening. If you're still there, yeah. please share with us why people should love this this very hipster band with a cult fan base. Why should people join this fan base? I think one of the reasons that you would be paid off in being a Rush fan is because of the Rush fans. It's such a passionate fan base, and you almost feel their energy. Seeing the shows, and unfortunately, no one will be able to again, but seeing the shows, just whenever Neil Parrott was going into a drum solo, seeing the hundreds of arms in the air drumming along with him in the air was uh, just so fun. Um, I think that as their music goes, I would honestly compare them to certainly classical music because of the musical integrity and the depth and the strangeness of it, but also to Shakespeare. Go with me here. Oh, boy. Hmm. Shakespeare has some, some, some hits, some, some bangers, some all-timers. <laughs> Shakespeare has bangers. And then there's a bunch of other stuff that's there the that is dramas. technically good, but you're like, oh, my gosh, this is, this is a lot. This is a lot. Yeah. Rush can be really be that way, too. Okay. There's a lot of it can, that can be a lot. But I would say if you really wanted to approach Rush, the best way to do it is by listening to uh, their greatest hits album that was released, which is uh, entitled The Spirit of Radio. It covers the band from 1974 to 1987, which is really, honestly, all that you would really need to do. Um, I think that that gives a great sampling of some songs from each album that uh, are very listenable, that also give you the good flavor of Rush without getting into the heavy nitty gritty that most fans do. So if I was to make any recommendation, it would be listen to the Greatest Hits album, The Spirit of Radio. I would say they, they're the musicians' musicians. So the people that 
you like to listen to, if you're into rock, they listen to Rush. Give them a shot. I mean, it's got some complex music. They've got some poetic lyrics. And then they're just decent, down-to-earth guys. They're not like they're party-hard kind of rock guys. They're, they're in it for the music. That's why they're there. That's what they're passionate about. They're not really there for the lifestyle. And that was one of the things that I, that I really liked about them. It's just a lot of enjoyment for me. Um, a lot of technicality, a lot of great intellectual lyrics as well. So that's, that's my plug. Okay. So there you go. Let us know if they have convinced you, especially you ladies out there. Let us know. <laughs> if, ladies? <laughs> I think they all stopped listening as soon as they heard it was Rush. Yeah, probably yeah. so. But let us know if you're going to, you know, if you've heard of Rush before, let us know. And then if you haven't, let us know if this changed your mind and you want to give them a listen. We do have that sampler platter on BakeItSell.com as well. And right now, we'd like to give some love to our patrons, if we may, including the I Am The Listener tier, which includes Scott Sprague, Crew Dutler, Adrian Gray, Terry Finley, Sean Sanquist, Alicia Bass, Braden Winterton, Jennifer Kukowski, Krampus801, Chris Stroud, and Kyler Just Wants Joel's Approval. We also have our Bacon Council, which includes Matt Smudrow, Brian Madsen, Jessica Terry, Nicole D. Hale, Chris Anderson, Stephen Ross, Reverse Listener, and Ryan Farron. Yeah! Yeah. Ryan, thank you for being here, and thank you for exposing us to the world of Rush. Thanks for letting me come on and talk about all the weird things I like. <laughs> it's, it's what we Bacon do. Sale. Yeah. I, just, I look forward to seeing what... Like I, I was kind of surprised by a Rush show, so I look forward to seeing what else comes out of your mind. But if you want to find me, you can find me at 76Joel on Twitter, or you can find me performing with QuickWits. They perform every Saturday night, right now online for free. For more details, go to qwcomedy.com or go to the QuickWits Facebook page. If you want to find me on Twitter or Instagram, it's at Kenny3DD. If you want to read my upcoming movie reviews for 2021, it's ShowtimeShowdown.com. <laughs> if you want to connect with me, you can do so on Twitter and Instagram at TumblingMustard. But more importantly, make sure you're following Bacon Sale on your social media. Give the Facebook page a like and also follow on Twitter and Instagram at Bacon Sale. While you're doing that, head over to tpublic.com slash Bacon Sale. Get yourself a t-shirt or a mug or a pillow or a sticker something. I hope we get some art from this show. With a cool new design, for sure. Yes, for sure. Awesome. And then also, if you're liking what's going on and you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash bacon sale. You can actually support. Monthly support starts at just $3 a month. You can get cool bonuses, benefits, and fun things, including our weekly bacon bits, which are very Don't promise weekly. (laughs) Oh, they're weekly. I will make sure. (laughs) They have been. Anyway, thank you so much, patrons. We appreciate you. And thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Marley. So until next time, catch the spit. I was going for uh, Getty Lee, but I think I ended up at Jack Black. Did you um, pre-show Kinkle? (laughs) Before we uh, leave? We'd like to apologize if they've even made it this far to the women who listen to Bacon Cell. It's going to get quiet and awkward. When we started out, our fan base was 100% male, and now our fan base is 100% male. We're book rush smart. We're yeah. not street rush smart. So we don't spotlight Canadian bands on bacon sale. <laughs> rush, rush, keep it down now. This is scary. Get ready to have some energy. Leave me alone. All right, it's kind of sounding the same right now. Player. The really high-pitched guy who sings like this yes. the entire time Basically. he's singing. Some of these songs they have, Kent could go to the bathroom in that time. <laughs> yeah, it takes a long time. In the 14 bathroom. minutes, that's all. You can get mad at him on the show. I do all the time. <laughs> Dolly Parton's your rush? Yeah, she's my rush. <laughs> Wilford Brimley was in rush? <laughs> yeah, he was. He's their manager. 
<laughs> it's like we're playing D and D. I am Bitor, the snow dog. <laughs> You're getting on us for wasting time? Let's get on with it, gentlemen. <laughs> if you bring up Xanadu, I'm going to talk about Xanadu. If we're getting Olivia Newton-John, we're, the we're getting to Greece too, and we do not have time for that. After that one is permanent ways. Hemisphere. Oh, Hemisphere. Sorry, yeah. Sorry. Oh! oh. <laughs> Ryan just got zacked. Awkward. We can get that out. It's okay, Ryan. <laughs> so, yeah. Joel loves Phil Collins so much. I do love so Phil Collins. I always smuggly look at him whenever we mention Phil Collins. <laughs> Oh, and they are very vocal. The twelve of them. I, oh. <laughs> these guys are just so exciting. I mean, what can I say? Oh, is yeah. it because their music only appeals to the Y chromosome? Is that what it is? It's about being tough, Joel. It's kind of more about environmental impacts and whatever. Oh, uh, he's a performer. <laughs> I still wasn't alive yet. You hadn't had the talk yet. Now he's... we're in the '90s, boys, and I'm officially alive at this point. I'm oh, one year old. <laughs> Like my girlfriend and my favorite that. band are in Canada. <laughs> and I won't get into it because it's super nerdy, but I'll just basically say... Oh, because this show hasn't right. been? <laughs> so it's like you had the talk, but in public. A wiener schnitzel, actually, and yeah. Ant-Man. Shakespeare has bangers. So there you go. Infectious monkeys. Did you guys know that? they, had, they had Infectious grooves. <laughs> Not infectious monkeys. I'm so confused. Yeah. Just cut that out. 